I'm still laughing at that picture Chris did. That, that was brilliant. Did you see it? Which one? The Hulk picture that Chris did? No, you us? said he was doing it. Oh, it, it's up on Facebook. Oh, is it? Oh, yeah. Okay. I just put. Let me just put face place on. Face place. Is it on um, under Mr. Ratnick? Uh, it should be under the Two True Freaks thing, I think. Right. Oh, I don't think I'm a member. I'll have to join that, given that technically I am now part of the demands. I will. I will. Well, no, it doesn't allow me to share it. No, it is under Arthur Ratnick. Yeah, it is. Oh, <laughs> yes, that's excellent. And look at this. The sad thing is, is that I look really good with Hulk hair. <laughs> it's like 70s Mike. That's actually really quite good, isn't it? And I've got white eyes. Yes. Excellent. He was apparently way ahead of you on that, because I requested it. And uh, he's just like, no, nah, I'm already there. So... <laughs> Yeah, I'm quite down with that. That's brilliant. <laughs> you look good with Bill Bixby's hair. I look good with her. Let's be honest. <laughs> Tonight, Bill Bixby stars in the exciting world television premiere. The return of the incredible Hulk. Scientist David Banner discovered the secret to superhuman strength. Now he seeks to control the raging spirit that dwells within him. Is he man or beast, savior or demon? What in the name of the return of the incredible Dr. David Banner, physician, scientist searching for a way to tap into the hidden strengths that all humans have. Then an accidental overdose of gamma radiation interacts with his unique body chemistry. And now when David Banner grows angry or outraged, a startling metamorphosis occurs. by an investigative reporter. Mr. McGee, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. An accidental explosion took the life of a fellow scientist and supposedly David Banner as well. The reporter thinks the creature was responsible. I gave a description to all the law enforcement agencies. They got a warrant for murder out of it. David Banner can never prove he or the creature didn't commit. So he must let the world go on thinking that he too is dead until he can find a way to control the raging spirit that dwells within him. Hey everybody, and welcome to a very special episode of Back to the Bins, something that you might consider a companion piece to the $6 million man episode that Scott Gardner and Andrew Leyland uh, did a couple of months ago. That was a pretty exhaustive and entertaining look at the $6 million man. Well, that's not the only show from the 70s that the Two True Freaks Network wants to talk about. And since I'm a really big fan of this show, and by the way, I'm Michael Bailey, in case I didn't introduce myself, because I forget to do that sometimes. 
I was in a conversation with our good friend Andrew Leyland about the Incredible Hulk television series. And Andy's like, you know, we should talk about that. So I I decided, like, it was all my idea. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, I thought, that does sound like a good idea. So with me this morning, as of this recording, is Andrew Leyland. Hello! And we are going to talk about what is... If you're going to count seasons, the third longest running series uh, based on a uh, comic book character, at least in the United States, uh, right behind Smallville and the Adventures of Superman, The Incredible Hulk. And nothing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I didn't know where you were going with that. Because I've never, I've never really thought about it that way. To me, the Hulk is the best live-action TV adaptation of a Marvel character ever. Granted, that's not a large field. Well, yeah. I mean, you're you're up against, let's see, Doctor Strange, yep. which was a pilot. Um, that Captain wasn't America. Uh, two pilots that recently got out on DVD. And Spider-Man. Which. I can't hate that show. No, I really can't. No, you can't. It's just jolly good fun, if very slow by today's standards. And, you know, they completely get rid of Uncle Ben, and he's mainly fighting turtleneck-wearing bad guys <laughs> yeah. uh, that were the staple of 70s television. <laughs> but Nicholas Hammond is perfectly fine. Oh, yeah, he's great. He looks the part. He acts the part. Uh, even the guy playing J. Jonah Jameson was uh, decent for what they gave him to work with. Mm. Yeah, so it's not it's not a complete write-off, the Spider-Man TV show. And again, it's one of those things, and, and, and this is really going to come back to The Incredible Hulk, uh, is when I was a kid and I was starved for television shows based on superheroes, um when I finally got to see the Spider-Man show because it was on so erratically in first run that I never really got to see it. But when I, but years later, uh, this, this show called Bowling for Dollars, um, which was this horrible, like, like call-in game show thing that you could do where the host would, like, basically, you'd call in and they would, like, do a little bowling thing, and however many pins they knocked down was how much money the person on the line won. Oh, quality. Uh, but between... The, to frame that, they would have, like, movies and television series. One time they had this live-action, like, mini-series of Frankenstein that was really good. Scared the hell out of me when I was a kid. Um, but one week, it was an entire week of Spider-Man. So it was one of two times that I watched Bowling for Dollars as a kid. <laughs> um, the Captain America ones just were so far afield of, of who Captain America was. I think I've seen one of them. I don't know if both of them ever got shown over here. The Spider-Man series was shown quite was shown properly over here, but we only got it in something like 1980 or something. We were quite behind with Spider-Man. Oh, according to my book... The Encyclopedia of TV Science Fiction by Roger Fulton. Yes, I still do my research in books. Uh, it debuted in England in the 4th of September, 1981. Oh, you guys got it really late. Yeah, so, but we saw both series back to back. They showed all of them as one long series. And in the 90s, BBC showed the pilot film and the two movies 
the two episodes that were edited mm-hmm. to movies over here quite a lot. They would show them as afternoon fillers and stuff, which I think was the Deadly Dust and the Chinese Web were released theatrically over here. The Deadly Dust. The Deadly Dust. And then there was the Clone Saga, which you all covered on Hey Kids Comics. <laughs> yeah, the Clone Saga. That was quite laughable. <laughs> Oh, but that was so... It's really, really 70s, especially Nicholas Hammond's hair. Yep. Um, I was surprised his hair disappeared under his mask, to be honest with you. (laughs) They probably put some kind of skull cap on him. Yeah, before he put the costume on. So, uh... (laughs) Although he has said that most of the time it's not him. Yeah. I mean, he's quite open about that. He said if it's an acting scene, it's him in the costume. But for the most part, it was the stunt guy. It's like a uh, quick digression. Chris O'Donnell joked that uh, he would see Arnold Schwarzenegger on the set of Batman and Robin all the time. He never remembers doing a scene with him because <laughs> it was always the stunt guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, which probably wasn't a bad thing because freeze is just something you want to forget. Um, I'm sure he wakes up screaming sometimes. No, the the cat movies. Um, it's it's hard to be too critical of them. I mean, it's really well. Actually, that's not true. It's very easy it's very to be critical easy of them. Um, but I don't want to because one that feels like very easy. It's kind of like shooting fish in a barrel. The first one was rather weak and it seemed like they were making up the script as they went along and they had him in that that other costume that I don't know why they tried to change the costume and then at the end there was that very obvious tag where somebody saw the movie and said you know what we need him in the other costume and said okay right there at the end he's going to show up in the classic but you know when you have a clear plexiglass shield that also serves as the windshield to your motorcycle <laughs> and your mask is your helmet. Oh damn. Um it, it it just it felt very much like like I was saying before. It was a typical 70s action plot with s- typical 70s bad guys for him to fight. Though Lance Legault was in the first one. Um it wasn't he in every single TV show in the 70s and 80s, though. Yes, How many he times was, he actually. in The Hulk? Uh, he's at Hulk least once. Uh, and I actually have a Captain America tie-in for the Antiwoc Terror. But um, but the second one was much better because it seemed like they had firmed up who Captain America was, so they got the origin out of the way, so they get right into the action. And the second one does have Christopher Lee. Oh, so, always a bonus. Uh, who... Every scene he's in, I just hear, I am here for the paycheck. (laughs) I wanted a wing on my house, and they were willing to provide the money for it. So, Fair enough. I'd really like to... There's apparently a documentary of him going through his personal effects. I would love to see the outtake of him picking up something from from, uh, Death Too Soon and (laughs) talking about it. And and to be fair of the second one, it has... And the first one, they both have two very cool action sequences that, as a kid, if you're watching it, would really get you excited. Um, in the second one, at one point, he tosses his motorcycle... I almost said off. That was very bad. He tosses his motorcycle <laughs> up on a ledge, and he rides it off of it, and as he's jumping off, he hits a button, and a hang glider pops out. And he's basically hang gliding after the bad guy, and he at one point, he ditches the hang glider, and it goes into this chase scene. 
And it's Mike Post music because Mike Post did the theme for it. So is it? Well, it was actually. Well, in between, yes, but this was actually the Captain America theme, which was actually rather cool. Surprisingly good theme for a surprisingly crap movie. There's no wrong with Mike Post and Pete Carpenter. Which is really funny that uh, on Family Guy, they were joking about how this show, I think it's called The Hills, is nothing but yeah. like three seconds of dialogue. And then they showed like five seconds of the A-Team. And I'm listening to the music and I'm like, that is every Mike Post. Yep, every Mike Post score ever made. <laughs> and then I thought of you, oddly enough. I'm like, Andy would think that would be funny. It was. Um, Very funny little skit. So, um, but you know... Universal had optioned all of the Marvel characters, or a bunch of the Marvel characters, including the Human Torch, which never got off the ground, because I don't... (laughs) How the hell would they have done the Human Torch on 70s television? That was going to be my question, was, how do you do a guy who is on fire all the time? (laughs) Uh, That probably looked really good on paper, and I'm sure Stan was like, hey, you gotta do the Human Torch, because he's a really great... That was the worst Stanley impersonation ever. I apologize. Um, (laughs) Yeah, but it could have been... They could have adapted Strange Tales, and then it would have been the worst television show ever made. (laughs) My friend Garrett, by the way, um, who uh, listens to this show and listens to a bunch of the other shows that I do, uh, also listens to the Fantastic Cast, and at the comic show we were at last week, said, "Could you tell Andy and Leyland to kind of slack off on Strange Tales? Because <laughs> he rather liked them." Well, that's fair enough. He's entitled to like them. Uh, I've said before, if I was reading them just for the sake of reading them, they probably wouldn't be that bad. Well, there you go. And that is that is the bane of podcasting, is when you have to look at it with a critical eye, you start seeing the flaws, and then things just kind of go downhill from there. Mm. Um, they also optioned The Incredible Hulk. And if I'm getting my TV history correct, they went to Kenneth Johnson, who was a producer on The Six Million Dollar Man. And uh, did he create or co-create The Bionic Woman? Uh, he created the Bionic Woman for a two-part episode of Six Million Dollar Man where he killed her off. Um, the network said, kill her off. He wanted to keep her alive. He said, this is a mistake. And they said, no, kill her. They came back to him and said, can you bring her back? This, these were huge rating successes. And he said, but you made me kill her off. But anyway, he brought her back for a two-part premiere of The Six Million Dollar Man, and then she was ultimately spun off into her own show. The thing with The Incredible Hulk came about was... Early on in the third season of The Bionic Woman, Ken Johnson and The Bionic Woman herself, Lindsay Wagner, were not getting along, is probably the nicest way to put it. Johnson has simply said since that there was some substance abuse on the part of Lindsay Wagner going on. That's allegedly, so nobody sues us. I'm only repeating what I've heard from someone else. Uh, She basically said, I'm not working with him anymore. He basically said, right, fine, I don't care. I'm under contract to Universal. They have to pay me whether I'm working or not. And he quit the show. So to keep him working, because they were paying him, they offered him a number of projects, one of which was The Incredible Hulk. Which he did not want to do. Nope, he had no interest in doing The Incredible Hulk at all. One of the rare things I don't like about Ken Johnson is how dismissive of the comic books he is. 
Yeah, I, I remember back in 1997, I, I bought an issue, uh, like a it was a special issue of like Starlog or something that was covering comic book related properties, and they had an interview with him about Steel, and just his attitude about the source material was very off-putting. Yeah, and and until I started listening to his commentaries on the episodes of The Incredible Hulk, and especially his commentary on V, which yeah. is amazing to listen to, um, I really didn't like the guy. <laughs> no, well, no, that's what I say. As in all other respects, he's a pretty great bloke. He's very open with his fans. If you email him through his website, he will respond personally. And, yeah, his commentaries for the Hulk episodes he's done commentaries for and the Six Mill episodes he's done commentaries for on the dvd releases are fantastic he gives excellent commentary because he's kept everything he knows the dates that these things were filmed and were they filmed and he's a font of useful information the married commentary we'll probably come to when we talk about this episode though is especially good because he spends the 90 minutes essentially just talking about bill bixby yeah i mean he eventually you know like every once in a while he'll go what's going on the screen and I'll point something out, or I'll point some kind of technical detail out, which I really like. But then, you know, in the kind of the slow parts where some directors and actors and producers and all that just aren't good at filling the material, he would just go on the behind-the-scenes stuff. Mm. And I just find myself just enraptured, but in listening to those commentaries, I get the feeling that he... This is going to sound harsh, but it's not. That he thought he was going to do something more profound than science fiction television. Yeah, well, he comes from the classics, doesn't he? Yeah. So the fact that he has made his career in shows like The Six Million Dollar Man, The Bionic Woman, The Incredible Hulk, and later on a show that I absolutely loved, Alien Nation. I adored Alien Nation. Oh, man, when that when that didn't come back, it actually broke my heart. Yeah, I loved Alien Nation. Because was that the season before The Flash or the season after The Flash? That was the season before The Flash because they were around the eighth grade. They were roughly around the same time that they both weren't coming back. Maybe they got shown over here at the same time because then neither of them came back for a second season. I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Especially since... Alienation ended on a cliffhanger. Yeah, they thought they were coming back. They'd written six scripts for series two, which ultimately became the movies that they did further down the line. But we're not an Alienation podcast. Uh, but it has to do with Kenneth Johnson. It does so. indeed. But, um, so Kenneth Johnson has offered it. He tries to beg it off. Apparently he was reading Les Miserables. And uh, I always wanted to add, and I was watching old episodes of The Fugitive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He maintains he doesn't watch a lot of television. Uh, this is true, but when you look at the when you look at like old episodes of The Fugitive, yeah, the formula's exactly the same. It's, yeah, and it's probably uh, my brother-in-law once said this to me. It's probably why The Incredible Hulk was so successful as a TV show. Yeah, because it had a very solid formula, which for the seventies. You need it. You need it. That that was a successful TV show that had kind of different things happening, but the same things happening every week. And the interesting thing about the Hulk, which we'll mention as we go along, though, is when they would break that formula. Mm-hmm. And they would break formula on a number of occasions, normally to spectacular effect. Absolutely. Just... <sighs> Going right before we even really get into the blow by blow of the series, uh, the Incredible Hulk as a TV series, and this is beyond the pilots, 
kind of you, you could break it down into one of three episodes, and sometimes they would mix up yeah. these things. But it was either the David wanders into a town and helps people out. Normally, a pretty woman. Yes, because as <laughs> I've said on more than one occasion, David Banner got more ass than a toilet seat. Um, he met more pretty scientists than there just, probably are general in real life. Or just like the good-looking daughter of the oil rig owner, who, <laughs> or the bookstore, or the shoe store, yeah, or, just, or the coal factory. And for a man that, when he would get angry or outraged, a startling metamorphosis would occur. He went into like the worst parts of town. Yeah, on all it's like all the freaking time. But it was like I'm gonna wander in to town and help somebody in need. Subset of that was we're going to deal with some kind of hot button, uh, social issue. Social issue. Yeah, that that's it. It was I'm searching for a cure. And the third one was the mix of those two, basically. Where he's wandering into town, he's looking for a cure, and something happens. Then, you would have, like, off-the-chart ones that didn't have a formula to it. Just complete... That were complete character pieces. And again, I think that's why this series was so successful, is because the writing... Sometimes was cack. I'll, yeah. I'll admit that there are episodes that are just bad. But when, especially when Kenneth Johnson was writing the script, you really cared about these people. Yeah. Well, I would he, add Karen Harris and Jill Sherman to that as well. Mm-hmm. The episodes Definitely. that stand up today are the ones that are about David. Mm-hmm. And there weren't Definitely. that many by the nature of the show. Every week's not going to be an episode about David Banner. It can't be. So that's why they populate the episode with this mishmash of, of sub-characters. And they normally do a good job in developing those characters over 50 minutes, and they normally do a good job of casting them. But the, mm-hmm. the episodes that still hold up today are the ones where Bixby gets something to do other than say, hey, don't do that and Hulk out. But, and, and I really uh, um, recommend that if you can, folks, track down the, con- the, the pilot and the commentary for the pilot. Because not only does this pilot hold up... Like, you could film this script today. Yeah. And it would hold up. Yeah. You would maybe have to tweak one or two different things. Yeah, you'd have to update the references to Farrah Fawcett. <laughs> but you just, you just throw uh, Lindsay Lohan in there. And it, or Kim Kardashian, it still works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which actually would be more appropriate, I think, <laughs> in some ways, of what the National Register would... Um, would talk about now I'm kind of, again because this is just how my mind works I'm kind of interested in how this series got to you uh, well again with according to my encyclopedia of TV science fiction the Hulk debuted in England on the 26th of May 1978 so as you were getting the last episode of the first season we were getting the pilot which was actually quite quick for the time Tradition, I mean, as we've mentioned with the $6 million, uh, the $6 million man, the Spider-Man show, we got that three years after it was cancelled, but that was primarily because it was released to cinemas first. So it wasn't that the TV stations didn't want to buy it. The, the film companies wanted to make more money by releasing them theatrically. So we got it, and I distinctly remember watching that pilot with me now because she would watch all of this stuff with me. She remembered Bill Bixby from My Favourite Martian. 
Mm-hmm. I vaguely remembered him from The Magician, the series that he did just prior to The Hulk. So we both know who Bixby was. I don't remember if I knew The Hulk at that point, because as with everything with me, it always comes down to Christmas 78, where she bought me those four annuals, one of which was The Incredible Hulk, which I have here, which published A Refuge Divided by Stanley, Gary Friedrich, and Marie Serverin. Um, I don't remember... Was that a Hulk annual in the US? Uh, it's the Inhumans? I think that was an annual. Because it is about a 40-odd page story, so I would imagine it was an annual. And uh, I watched that pilot as it aired and loved it. I loved it when it was on. It was one of the few episodes I ended up having on videotape because the pilot was shown quite a couple of times by ITV just as a film not as a prelude to rerunning the series. They would just throw movies on on Saturday afternoon and they would show pilots and not follow them up. So the Hulk pilot and Buck Rogers would get shown at steady rotation as these kind of afternoon movies. Um, And the only other episode I had on videotape for a while was a minor problem. Really? Yeah, because we only got a video in 1982. Okay. Video recorder. So I watched it from the beginning. I do remember over here, we just leapt straight into the first season which, again, was was normal for us. We don't do television the way you do television. We show a series, we show it every week, and when that series finishes, it comes off the air and we show something else in that time slot. Whereas you guys just go into reruns, don't you? Mainly, yes. So that's how it works over here. The show finishes, the announcer at the end will say that was the last episode of The Incredible Hulk for this series, but he will be back in the new year or later in the year or whatever, and then next week another series started. And that's how we saw our television. That would be so weird to watch the waterfront story and at the end of it hear a British guy tell me that the Incredible Hulk will return. Uh, well, that's always assuming we showed them in the same order because I don't oh, think well. we did. Um, I don't remember... I mean, I don't remember the order of these, but I'd, I know Earthquakes Happen was shown much later than part of the first season. And this is one of the reasons where the, the standard set of the time was show episodes so they can be shown in any order worked out over here because the ITV network specifically would just throw episodes in random I distinctly remember Magnum PI would show episodes with characters in who died and you were like alright so this one obviously takes place before that one there was a couple of episodes of various shows that were shown late night uh, Erwolf had an episode that was only shown late night so did Magnum and so did the Hulk but we'll get to that when we get into the third season Oh, ooh, a tease. A tease. Nice, you'd think we'd be doing this professionally for a few years now, wouldn't you? Yeah, well, <laughs> not the way that I introduce things. Um, for me, the Hulk is just, it's like Christopher Reeve's Superman. I don't, I, it was there from the beginning. Uh, I was born in 76, so I don't, I can't say that I remember watching the pilot because I was one and my memory's not that good. Uh, one of my earliest memories, though, when we were living uh, in Allentown, Pennsylvania, which isn't just a Billy Joel song, as I've had to tell people recently. Um, <laughs> it's a real I, place. I actually had someone go, I thought that was just a Billy Joel song. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, uh, when we lived there, when my family lived in that area the first time, we, we lived in a townhouse, and... It's like the most vivid memory I have from that from that townhouse was there was a show called PM Magazine on that was like seven thirty, and it was just like a little entertainment, you know, like um, 
human interest type show where they were like, hey, this person has a weird birthmark. Let's go talk to them. And they would show entertainment stuff, and they had something about the Incredible Hulk. And the Hulk was on the screen, and I remember now I know it's from the pilot. But it showed him, like, you know, standing over the car, and the car explodes. And I turned to my mother, and I burst into tears. (laughs) I just started crying and sobbing. But I loved the show. But I kid you not, and you're going to laugh at this... It was. I was 10 years old before I could watch a full transformation. See, I've had loads of people say this to me, that they were freaked out by the transformation as a kid. And I've said before on our show, Michael, my son, didn't like the transformations. He would turn and hide when the transformations came on, but he would go dip, 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 daddy to mean that he was hulking out. But he loved it when he was the Hulk. But yeah. as a, but for me, I loved the transformations as a kid. I loved the whole thing. I loved the score, the dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, that would build up to it, building up the tension. I would sit either on the edge of the seat or on my nan's knee or wherever the hell I was, and I would clench my fists because the Hulk's coming out. And then it would hit that musical sting at the end, Dum! and the camera zooms into his eyes, and it was just, yes! And I loved the Hulk out as a kid. I still love them to this day. I love it when you see everything go, when you see the shoes rip and the shirt go. On Pad Smash Gear, David Wheaters talks about ripping his stuff. As a kid, I used to do exactly the same thing. We would have those crappy polyester pajamas as kids in the 70s, and they were pants and a shirt. And what I would do is I would tuck the shirt cuffs in the palm of my hands and grip them with my fingers, and then flex my shoulders so the shirt would rip. My nan was not impressed by this. (laughs) By your feet of strength. By my feats of strength. And then I would literally just pull it off, you know, like he would do, and then go, I would do that all the time as children, to the point where my nan started buying me pyjamas that were t-shirt tops. <laughs> I I have figured you out, sir. <laughs> you will not rip these. Yes. No, but but as a kid, you know, when, when the show was first on in the late 70s and the early 80s, I would watch it. I have dim memories of watching it. I know uh, especially... The season premiere to season four with you know with Prometheus, my family all sat around and watched that because by that point we were living in this little small town in New York, and I remember us in the because uh, it was a, 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 a not a duplex but it was but it wasn't quite a two story house either, and in the downstairs part was where our TV was. That's where we watched Superman the movie for the first time as well. Right. Uh, and I just remember just like all us all being huddled around and watching it and the lights were off and it was it was just something I always looked forward to and I was really into the Hulk. And my grandmother, my dad's mother, um did you guys get cabbage patch kids over there? Yes, we got cabbage patch kids. Okay. They they hit big in the United States in nineteen eighty four and grandmothers were punching each other out and Toys R Us over it. Um they started right around where I live right now, uh, like about two hours north of here in Cleveland, Georgia, was where Xavier Roberts first started making them, and they were craft. They were craft things, yeah. you know, like old women get together and they're like, okay, this week we're doing this, next week we're doing this. For a while there, before Cabbage Patch dolls got really popular, my grandmother would make all of her grandkids Cabbage Patch dolls, and now I was a boy, so I didn't want a baby. She made me a Hulk one. Cool. Green. It had green hair. It had ripped clothing and purple pants. I wish I had that today. Oh, it's right. of the age. Uh, we moved like three or four times. So, and I have a feeling my mother tossed stuff out. 
as, uh, as mothers do, yeah. Yeah, so, but, um, but this show has been with me my entire life. When it was canceled, it almost immediately went into syndication. Yeah. And I, and I think it was like 1984 on New Year's Day, there was an ad on this channel, on Channel 11 WPIX out of New York, where they're like, we're going to be showing the Hulk. And that's kind of how it followed, like, for the rest of my life. I, if it was on, and I knew it was on, I was watching it. Yeah, I was the... See, the $6 million man went off the air and kind of disappeared. And watching them on DVD now is the first time I've seen them in 35 years. The Hulk didn't do that. The Hulk was rerun almost constantly. It got rerun through the 80s on ITV. They did a proper rerun in the 90s of a couple of seasons. It went straight over to sci-fi in the mid-90s and got rerun again. It went on to ITV4. I've mentioned before it got a rerun on Channel 5 when I got married. I watched the pilot episode the morning I got married to Angela. And so it's when it was, and I'm the same as you, when it's on, I watched it. And so it is like, and then it got the DVD releases and, and so on. So I think I've probably been watching this series off and on for 25 years now, or however old it is now. It's nearly 30 now, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, it's like 25. It'll be 25 years Twenty five years next year. Yeah, so. In 2013. Yeah, I don't remember not watching it. It's, it's just one of those things. And it's why it is grandfathered in to my usual problem with comic book adaptations is when they go completely against what the comic books are like. But because I wasn't reading the comics when I was first exposed to this show, it doesn't bother me. Yeah, see, that's what I mean. I can't remember if I was reading the comics or not. I do know that this annual that I've got that they got me for Christmas, I did go to my granddad and said, this is completely different from the TV show. Banner's not even in this. And my mm-hmm. granddad said something to, that has stuck with me forever. He said, books are always different from the films. That's why books are better. And that's like, <laughs> oh, right. He told that to my six-year-old self. And to this day, I think books are better than films. Even though I love film, anytime you're going to adapt a movie from something that I adore, the book's always going to be better. Full stop. Yeah, it was years later until I started really reading the comic books, but because of the 1982 animated series that they would show on Saturday mornings with Spider-Man and his amazing friends, I knew that there was a different version of the Hulk out there. And it's kind of weird that I think how influential that was to me, because between that and reading... Superman from the 30s to the 70s and Batman from the 30s to the 70s, which are these two hardcover reprints that were published in the early 70s by Bonanza Books of Superman and Batman stories from several different decades. At a very early age, I had an innate understanding that as time goes on, things change in the comics and that there are different versions of characters. Mm. So that when I got into comics and learned about things like Earth 2 and Earth 1, it didn't bug me and I thought it was kind of cool because I understood, well, that's just how comics work. Like, this bizarre, like, oh, that's just that's just how it is. So, okay, we're yeah. just going to go from there. See, I think Be- that's why I'm the same as you. I'm not as bothered when they change stuff for films. It bugs me a bit. Like, with the new Amazing Spider-Man movie, the burglar still isn't a burglar. And it's like, that's a fundamental part of Spider-Man's origin. Can you not get that right at least once, please? <laughs> but it, it's, it's a completely different thing. And the comics are still there. I still prefer the comics. 
And I do think it is down to the Hulk TV show being so different from the comic books. But still standing up in its own right. Yeah. Because sometimes they add up to, like, here's a, here's a good example. Steel, that Kenneth Johnson wrote and directed. Completely different from the comics. I've never and seen Steel. It has Annabeth Gish in it, who is hot. Um, as kind of like his nerdy computer. Yeah. Thing. Well, as so, soon as I heard yeah. that the premise was that they were removing all reference to him team being related to Superman, I was like, well, what's the point? Exactly. And it's one of those uh, it's one of those things where you look at it and you go, that is so far away from what makes this character work that it just it just falls apart. The reason why this series works, and I think it's the why I you know in 91 when channel 11, summer of 91 right after I got out of out of uh, ninth grade, they started showing it on WPIX again in order. And that was the first time I'd ever really... Wa- and it, I would, like, miss an episode here or there, but it was basically come home from summer school and watch The Hulk. And that was yeah. the first thing I did. And it was just so cool to see kind of the series unfold. And when we get to season four, I got to watch an episode that I had been waiting literally ten years to see. <laughs> You've and devoted an entire show to that one. To one... Uh, too too good or ill, I don't know. The it was a, it was that. a great two parter, but um, but then in '92 when Sci-Fi started up, the Sci-Fi Channel, and since the cable system where I lived was the very first cable system in the United States, so we tended to get channels as they were coming out and didn't have to wait like in other parts of the country. Mm. I was sick home, um, with like a really bad flu the day the sci-fi channel premiered and i watched the entire day i watched the tom ba- the first tom baker doctor who where it was pretty much started that i really wasn't going to be a fan of doctor who the Nothing giant the, the giant robot you didn't like the giant robot it, it just didn't get me just, <laughs> uh, they had they started they, they they showed dark shadows but they started at episode 1 before barnabas collins got there so it's like what that show is known for wasn't there at first. And then it was 4 o'clock, Incredible Hulk, 5 o'clock, $6 million man, 6 o'clock, Bionic Woman. That's Every pretty, day. That's a pretty good trifecta. And I just, I would watch. and But the problem is, is that the sci-fi channel guts the show. Yeah. And I'll get to that again and, and when we talk about an episode from season four where they cut something out that I'm like, how do you cut that out? <laughs> That's like an important piece of the plot. The, the adverts are more important, dude. <laughs> Especially the god-awful adverts they had on the Sci-Fi Channel and how gaudy that, sh- that channel was when it first came on. <laughs> the computer teasers and stingers and stuff uh, for the sci-fi channel just didn't work out as well but no it's just like going all the way up to to now i can watch this well except for season five i can watch the whole thing on netflix i have the dvds sci-fi channel will still show it in fact when i was in metropolis (laughs) illinois for the superman celebration i felt like such a traitor because as we were getting ready in the hotel room in the mornings sci-fi channel was running the hulk in the mornings because they were leading up to the Edward Norton movie premiering that Friday. Right. 
And I'm like, I'm in Metropolis, Illinois. There is a giant Superman statue not one mile from where I am right now. I am in my hotel room watching David Banner get used by the FBI to catch some old woman (laughs) who he has a grudge against and loving every minute of it. Oh, man. But looking at the series uh, as a whole, we, we were kind of talking about this before, and Andrew can correct me if I get anything wrong. Uh, Universal got the rights to the Marvel characters, uh, probably with Stan Lee there, you know, shaking hands and glad-handing people. <laughs> uh, they give it over to Kenneth Johnson. Kenneth Johnson doesn't want to do it, but he had been uh, reading Les Miserables, which is about to be a feature film. Oddly enough, with... Um, What's his name? Hugh Jackman as Jean Valjean, oh, who right. wants to play Bill Bixby. Yep, in a, in a biopic, yeah. Which I would love to see. Yeah, because um, it would be a brilliant art-imitating-life kind of story. So, Kenneth Johnson had been reading Les Miserables, and he was really struck by Jean Valjean and Javert and, you know, the, the, the hunted man and, and how you could make this realistic as humanly possible because apparently the comic books are just damn silly. Uh, And he writes the script. And again, like we said before, this script holds up so well. It is so strongly written and the characters are so vivid. And it is so believable that this guy accidentally exposes himself to too much gamma radiation and this creature comes out. Yeah, doesn't he mention in the the commentary on this that it went through very few revisions? Because he mentions the color scheme for revisions mm-hmm. of scripts, and the script for the whole was still on white pages with a couple of colored pages in between, which basically meant that the script he banged out was the script they filmed. Which is very rare, uh, especially in Hollywood, because usually stuff goes through like 15 revisions and 30 writers. Mm. But this being television in the late 1970s and it seemed that television at that point was more producer and writer driven uh, than anything else that it makes sense that since he's the one kind of running the show that if there were going to be changes made he would be the one to make the changes he casts Bill Bixby who you said had better known probably to people at this point for My Favorite Martian he was in a bunch of Elvis films Uh, leading him later in life to star in two specials, Is Elvis Alive? And, oh, no, Elvis is definitely dead. Uh, That's not what they were called, but that was basically uh, the the point of them. He was also in a show called The Magician and The Courtship of Eddie's Father, leading to a very great cameo in the Edward Norton Incredible Hulk film. Yeah. Uh, I thought. I was like, that's brilliant. Yeah. just a really solid actor, like like a serious actor. Like even though he did goofy stuff, even when he's like in my favorite Martian, you can tell that this guy is taking the material completely serious. Yeah, but he, he was a very good comedic actor as well. Mm-hmm. But by all accounts, just on the commentaries and stuff, he was a very serious actor, and you can take that in both connotations of the word. So even when he's doing comedy, he's he's playing it very straight and see, taking it very seriously. But he was a very good comedy actor. And while it is impossible to really say this, I don't think the show would have worked out without him. No, it, it is one of those things. When you, you think about the whole, the thing that you remember is Bixby walking away to Johan L's theme. 
That mm-hmm. is the indelible image of the series and his eyes turning white. As good as Ferrigno was as the Hulk, and despite the limitations of special effects and makeup technology of the 70s, he is very good. He does what he's expected to do. He does it very well. They do as good a job as possible of using camera angles to make him look bigger than he is, and he's already pretty huge. Mm-hmm. It's Bixby and that image that you think of when you do the show. Family Guy has spoofed that by having Stewie walking down the road thumbing a lift to the, the Joe Harnell theme. Which, which, that, that episode where Peter was drunk and playing TV themes. Yeah. And Stewie goes, no, wait, 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 play that sad music. And he, and he starts doing that. I laughed hysterically because when I was in high school, I was in chorus. And between concerts, like before we would start the rehearsals for the next concert, we would have like basically study halls. And one time somebody had the sheet music to that. And I heard it playing, and I picked up my book bag, and I started walking slowly out of the auditorium, put my thumb out. No one thought it was funny. Uh, see, now me and Ange have that as a running gag. Whenever, <laughs> when we first started going out with each other, whenever I would have to leave her and drop her off at home or whatever, I would walk away, and I would turn around and hitch a lift. <laughs> and every time she just rolled her eyes at me. But it has come a point now, nearly 20 years later, that we've been together. The wedding photo, yeah. Oh, Michael's. But oh, no, that gone. was brilliant. <laughs> the um, but Bill Bixby is the key to this series because in the pilot and the series going on, it is like Christopher Reeve as Superman and now Chris Evans as Captain America. Yeah, he you, believed in the material. You believe in it totally, yeah, and it's more than anything. You'll forgive any changes they made because they get the character of Banner so perfect being Mm -hmm. the hulk has ruined his life it's not like he became the hulk and said i will go out and fight crime no this has destroyed his life and he wants desperately nothing more than to be rid of it he doesn't want the power he doesn't want whatever this is he's not even interested in exploring how it happened which as a scientist you would think he would be no he just wants it gone and, and that's the single-minded determination of the character and why, you know, like you said, as a scientist, he should want to figure this out. But no, he's so, like, especially after the pilot, this is, this is just, this is a curse. Yeah. And it weighs on him. But when Bixby is talking about it, you believe it. Because he doesn't look like he like he's reading the dialogue and going, God, this is crap. And sometimes the dialogue was absolutely crap. But, again, the writing of the pilot was so strong, and the fact that it was different from... it's No other comic book pilot has ever been like this. Nope. Because there is no bad guy. Nope. There is an antagonist. Yeah, but and they do an excellent job with McGee over the course of the series, though, don't they? Mm-hmm. Of expl- the, there's two really brilliant episodes focus on McGee that make you actually appreciate his point of view. Oh, definitely. I mean, in, in the pilot, he's kind of he's a little more two dimensional than he would eventually become. Yeah, uh, smoking, which apparently to Kenneth Johnson means you're a bad guy. Well, uh, th- there's an episode later on. I think it's interview with the Hulk where we do establish that McGee has quit smoking. Mm-hmm. So it, it's one of those things I'd, I'd liked. That was a nice little continuity thing because we'd seen that he did smoke. But, you know, in the pilot, it's established that David Banner's wife has died. Uh, and in a great little opening montage that really gives you, I mean, it's like two or three minutes long, but you get their entire relationship. Yeah. 
and why she means so much. And and being married now myself, and you'll probably relate to this too. You know, it gets you a little harder. Yeah. Than when you're a kid. Yeah, it's such uh, a believable motivation for why he's doing what he does. And he gets the overdose of the gamma radiation. And as Kenneth Johnson points out in the commentary, his first transformation isn't because he, you know, he gets beaten up by a mugger or something like that. We see the Hulk, which would have been very typical for the time. Yeah. Could have been very easy for another writer to come on and do that because that was your kind of standard formula for this sort of television series. And no, he he gets a flat tire. Yeah. And scrapes his knuckle. <laughs> This family guy kind of spoofed when they when they spoofed the opening. Oh, I hit my hand on the ground and it really hurt. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's pithy and funny. But it's it's losing the build up to it. Oh yeah, and prior I mean, to that as well, before we even get to the transformation sequence, we do establish David has a temper. Mm-hmm. This is something I think is is overlooked, but is important to note because every week they have to find an excuse for him to Hulk out every twice an episode. They do establish in the first half hour of that pilot he is a guy with a loose fuse, and the backstory I always came up with in my head was that his wife was perhaps some kind of anger management psychologist who helped him through this, and without her, he's not got that thing to hold on to anymore. Well, I remember watching the the pilot as a two-part episode because it was in syndication really for the first time in 91 uh, when I when they were when I was like 15. And I remember that scene where he's sitting there talking to Elena Marks who is his partner uh, at the uh, research facility he works at and he's got his files in his hands. He goes, you know, we've been going over this again and again. What is the common denominator? And he slams it down. I'm like, dude, come. Oh, wait, he's not the Hulk yet. Yeah. <laughs> it was just so weird seeing him angry. And not Hulk out. And not Hulk out. Because there's only one other episode where he gets angry on purpose. And that's scary as hell. Yes. But just just seeing him there in that in that very human moment it's just like oh and it, it like it was literally like i got excited like and then there was nothing there so yes yeah. <laughs> it, it was just a really weird emotion cuz it is one but, of those things in later episodes where he will be in a situation uh, like meta, not metamorphosis prometheus where he's trying to rescue the girl in the water and you're mm-hmm. thinking in any other episode this would have been a hulk out yeah <laughs> They are inconsistent mm. in, uh, in in what can actually cause cause a Hulk out, which my wife will point out constantly if she's watching the show with me. Um, <laughs> uh, we'll be sitting there watching it all here next to me. Why hasn't he changed yet? <laughs> <laughs> but um, experiments on himself, it doesn't work, and that frustration, and then and and. and Johnson touches on this in his commentary, but he's absolutely right. It's such an everyday occurrence. Yeah. You know, you're having a bad day. Something's not working out at work. Oh my God, it's raining. I'm getting soaked. Driving along, kind of pissed off. I got a flat tire. It's just, Everybody's it's so, had a day like that. I literally had a day like that. And when <laughs> yes, I was yes, changing the yeah. And when I was changing the tire you. in the rain, all yeah. I heard was dun 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 dun. <laughs> I go, if I scrape my knuckles on the ground, this car is screwed. Um, <laughs> and then we get the first transformation, and they do an excellent build-up to it. Because mm-hmm. it, the first time you see it, 
it's excellent. When you've seen it a couple of times and know it's coming, it's still fantastic. The music and the lighting and the camera angles and how it all builds together. He does a really good job of milking that for all it's worth, that first transformation. Oh, yeah, like because you're like seeing bits and pieces of it. You see the white eyes, you see the chest expanding, you see him bending the crowbar in half. But it isn't until you have that first stand-up where, you know, the camera's on the ground, the rain's coming down, the Hulk stands up, the lightning flashes. It's like, holy crap. Yeah. This is actually kind of frightening. Well, what's funny about that is the lightning flashes that are used there are, again, used in Married, but Mm -hmm. they're also used in the episode of The Six Million Dollar Man where the bionic woman has her breakdown and dies. <laughs> exactly the same universal stock footage. That's what which they had to pay for. Yeah, every week, every time yeah. used it. <laughs> like there's, there's a guy at Universal just going ka-ching, yeah. ka-ching, <laughs> ka-ching, and you know it gets very Frankensteinian. Uh, while he's the Hulk for the first time, you have the whole thing with the little girl and her father. And the one and only shot of Richard Keel. Yep. Um, who was originally cast as the Hulk, but I, I just, I, they didn't like his look. I'm trying to remember what, what Johnson said in the uh, commentary. The semi apocryphal story was his children said to him, That's not the Hulk. And when you okay. kids say that, then you know you've got a problem. But I think Johnson said he was realizing it as they were filming it. He had the height, he didn't have the width. Yeah, and you you really kind of need that. I mean, even Ferrigno was not, you know, seven feet tall, but he was still massive. Mm. And camera and, angles and stuff, they can make him look bigger. And did. Oh, yeah, putting it over his shoulder, using different lenses, yeah. that kind of stuff. That first pilot, they, they go to great lengths to emphasize just how big he is. It's not the show's fault that subsequent directors wouldn't go to that trouble. But certainly the shot from behind the back of his head as he's looming over the girl, he looks huge. (laughs) And then she gets scared. He's like, oh. (laughs) It's kind of like just watching a guy who's just stumbled into something and he's freaking out and he doesn't realize he's the one causing the trouble. It's like, no, no, seriously, it's okay. I'll get you this tree. We're going to help you. I'm going to get you out of this water. And now this dude's shooting at me. What the hell is going on? (laughs) And he he gets shot in the arm by the kid's dad, which changes arms when you're watching the show. But that shows that that he's not bulletproof. That shows that he's not bulletproof in like in the comics, but that would happen in the Knight Rider pilot episode as well. (laughs) He gets shot in one arm, and then when he's in the car, he's holding the other arm. So maybe this was a universal TV thing. Either that or the continuity person just sucked. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's like he's just sitting off in the corner having a cup of coffee. Hey, which arm was it? Left. Are you sure? Uh, Yeah, I'm sure. Shut up. Goes back to the racing form. (laughs) I'm here because I'm somebody's cousin. Leave me alone. <laughs> no nepotism on this set. <laughs> but but again, so different from every other thing because it, it, it's not like even even after he changes in a rather... I'm saying this and it, and it, it's going to sound like I'm, I'm saying something bad about it, but it's a pedestrian way. We see him with the little girl... And again, we're not. He doesn't stumble upon some major crime. There isn't a mastermind out to rule the city no. that the Hulk stumbles into. 
And this is the subplot that would ruin a couple of later, otherwise really excellent episodes. The need to squeeze in a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And he just, he changes back. And he goes to Elena Marks, played by the very lovely Susan Sullivan. Now Castle's mum. Now Castle's mum. And you told me that on an episode of Castle they were watching. Yeah, she, she's going through a crisis of, of confidence in the show as she realizes she's now got to the point. In the show, Castle's mum is an actress. And she's got to the point in her career now where she's realizing that the roles are drying up and she's fed up of playing grandmothers. And this will lead her to a subplot where she opens her own acting studio and theater. But there's this one episode where she's going through her old show reels and she's watching the scene where the Hulk is in the, um, the, t- the testing thing. It has a proper mm-hmm. name, I forget what it's called. And hyperbaric chamber. That's the one, the hyperbaric chamber, and he smashes through the glass and she's talking into the cassette recorder. She's watching that scene on television and I was watching it and I was expecting them to make a joke or, or something and they don't. They earned my eternal gratitude by having her just watching it and saying, and then Castle walks in on her, Nathan Fillion, and he says to her, um, he, he remembers the men. Some of the leading men you've dealt with were were a lot of problems. She said, "Oh no, he was a pussy cat. He was lovely." <laughs> and that's it. They make no other reference. It's playing in the background as they had their conversation, but they don't take the mick out of it or anything. And I really appreciated that. And it was really lovely as well to see Susan Sullivan then and now. And it was mm-hmm. one of those things where you think, obviously, she's not embarrassed by the fact she was in this. Well, no, because one, it was good, and two, it was successful. Mm. I mean, it's not like it's not like she did this and the show went nowhere. Yeah, uh, and she and her character is so integral to the rest of the series that you know is one of the things I loved about the series was its continuity. She's not like Helen Hunt being in the Bionic Woman, where she said, "I wish I could burn that." I think that's just so disrespectful. Even George Clooney has said he doesn't regret Batman and Robin because when he got that part, he was made up to get it. And on, in his career trajectory, it was him heading up a big budget movie, which he'd never done before. And for that mm-hmm. reason, he can't hate the film. He may, he's apologized to us as fans, which I thought was very generous of him, considering he's not the problem with the movie. No, I was, I, the, I was arguing with Jeffrey about this just the other yeah, day, actually. Going back to what we were talking about before the show, pretentious actors. Mm-hmm. It's like he said to Michelle Pfeiffer, no, when you got Grease 2, you appreciated that you'd got Grease 2. Don't be embarrassed by the fact you did Grease 2. And for that, I think I've got a lot of respect for George Clooney. Yeah, I mean, the, the weird tangent, but I, 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 I'm i like you. I, I appreciate it when actors, well, to repeat the word, appreciate where they started from. Yeah. Because, you know, he'll... he'll, he'll poke fun at facts of life George Clooney but I never got the sense that he was poking fun that he like oh I'm so embarrassed I did that and Ro- it was just Anne. no that was just one of my first acting gigs yeah and Roseanne he'll poke fun at Roseanne but he'll poke fun at him in Roseanne yeah I mean and it's because you know when you're I, I can only imagine this but when you're an actor and you get a recurring supporting role on a series, that has to be a big deal. Yeah. Because that's a weekly paycheck. Yeah, and he himself has said he spent 15 years going from pilot to pilot that never sold. So, you know, it, it, it is nice to hear, and, and, and that the, the people responsible for Castle didn't go for the easy joke. I can only assume there is comic book fans on the staff at Castle because it isn't the first comic book reference in the show. Uh, they've established that his partner, Beckett, knows who Frank Miller is 
and has read the odd Frank Miller comic, and they established in an episode that Castle has a copy of Avengers number one. It's kind of like over on Bones when uh, David Boreanaz got the role of Green Lantern. They showed him in the tub reading an issue of Green Lantern. <laughs> um, but um, but he goes to Elena Marx's house, and in the I don't, do, do they split it up? Into single episodes I've over there? I've never seen the two-part version of the pilot. I've only ever seen the, the proper version, because that's the one I had on videotape. So, okay. So in, when it gets repeated, I've never bothered watching it, because I know it's going to be cut. In the syndicated version, uh, he goes to her house, and uh, basically, you know, he goes, you know, it was me, but it wasn't me. And it's like a close-up on his face... And that's where they go to be continued. Right. And then they start the next episode with a previously on the Incredible Hulk, and they continue with the scene. Oh, so the scene it, where McGee shows up at the door is still in there, then? Oh, it is. Right. It's just... It's in part it's, two. It's at the beginning... Yeah, it's at the beginning of part two, basically. Right. Um, so and, in the syndicated version, do they put the opening credits on it? Because that yes. would kind of ruin the end of part no, two. No, not, not the first episode. Right. And in the syndicated version, they do the extended version of the opening credits that they did for the second pilot, which freaked me out when I first saw Death in the Family. Yeah, because it was different. Yeah, and and anytime something's like different from what I is ingrained in my head, I suddenly wonder if I have been trapped in an alternate universe. <laughs> which has happened to you occasionally, I believe. Once or twice. I don't really like to. T- the doctor says I shouldn't talk about it. So. <laughs> But again, you know, the, the the whole rest of the pilot is him trying to get rid of this problem. Bix's big problem, as Kenneth Johnson calls it. And the second transformation, again, does not happen because international jewel thieves are breaking <laughs> into the research facility to get something. He has a nightmare. Again, something that everyone freaking has. And would become a recurring thing throughout the series, that it even happens when I sleep. And that's a scary thought in and of itself, too. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, here's this uncontrollable force of nature that can literally happen at any point, and he has no control over it. And the sadness of this whole series, and one of the, the biggest pieces of irony, is that McGee is after the creature because he thinks the creature killed Elena Marks and David Banner. When he killed Elena Yeah, Marks. he was responsible for the fire at the Culver Institute. Uh, named after Kenneth Johnson's middle name, and then there's, you know, Culver City, California. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that's the thing that when I watch this pilot always gets to me, is that he breaks into the research facility. He causes whatever chemicals dumped over to cause the explosion. You know, Elena dies because of him, and now he's after somebody else. And I know we're going to talk about, you know, a how the series should have wrapped up. But it's never brought up again. No. It's never even explored. It's never mentioned again. Um, and it would have been something that would have been nice if they could have in some way, if they had done a final episode, have brought that to light. Just have somebody come forward and say, well, the fire was caused because of yeah. this. Yeah, in, in there, the trial or something, whatever. In fact... There was there was a storage... There, it was in a storage thing, and just have McGee realize, oh, crap. 
that was me and just have his entire world shatter in one just uh, emotional scene but but you know the confrontation between Banner and McGee which is a with very few exceptions the last time these two will have scenes talking to each other there'll be scenes together but it's usually Banner seeing him and then running away yeah <laughs> and hiding his face apart from one notable episode um I would say two but you know uh, Mystery Man and the one where he looks like the mobster yeah so but that's that's me being picky about it um and, and there would be like other episodes where they're together but one of them's unconscious yeah but that confrontation and that that's that 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 famous line Mr. McGee don't make me angry you wouldn't like me when I'm angry and I would still like an outtake of him going I don't like you now <laughs> and the explosion happening <laughs> but do you think that line would have had as much impact if it wasn't shown at the beginning of every episode? No, because it would have just been a throwaway line. And there is okay. the thing that it has become the catchphrase for the show, despite the fact he only ever says it twice. This is true. And the second or, time he says it, it's got a much different, a far different connotation. Oh, holy crap. <laughs> and uh, it was also said by my father to me as I was going to yeah. bed one night when I was like five scaring the crap out of me. And in the comics, the first time it was ever used was in a burn issue of the Fantastic Four, oddly enough. (laughs) I forget that. Yeah, the the issue after Secret Wars where Sue loses the baby and Reed's got all the the noted scientists of the Marvel Universe there to to look at why she's having so much difficulty with this pregnancy. Michael Morbius is there. David David Banner, Bruce Banner's there. Uh, Doc Samson's there and Dr. Octopus is there. And Banner can control the Hulk out to that point. And he said, don't make me angry, Dr. Octopus. You won't like me when I'm angry as he's hulking out. And I believe that was the first time it was said in the comic. In fact, the comics made very little reference to the TV show until Peter David came aboard. They made little reference to it. They did try to ape the style of the show. Mostly in Ravaging Hulk, I think, um, the regular series. Well, there was... It seemed like around this time he was on the run. Yeah. Going from town to town and such. But then Roger Stern would come on and he would be at a military base and Lynn Sampson would try to cure him and... All that stuff. But yeah, right after that, it was the Hulk going from like city to city to city to city um, within the regular series. So, But yes, the rampaging Hulk, the magazine, which reached a different audience than the comic books would, I guess it made sense for that to kind of follow the TV series. Because if you're at, you know, the drugstore or whatever and you see the Hulk magazine, you're probably going to want to read something like you see on TV. Yeah. So that kind of makes sense. Plus, uh, well, when when uh, what's his name wasn't doing the was it Mantlo that was writing it or Doug Minch that had like that star character that was kind of bad and I really didn't care for at all. In the backup strip of Rampage, no, it, it was like it was one of the main plots, and they brought it they brought it into the regular series during the Mantlo run uh, when the Hulk was. Uh, like you said, he was Bruce Banner and he could control the transformations uh, and was considered a hero at the time. Right. Which is actually one of the best stories Bill Mantlo ever wrote 
uh, period was the the rise and the fall of the Hulk, leading to the worst storyline he ever wrote, which was <laughs> the Hulk at the crossroads. But that's entirely beside the point. And at the end of the pilot, you know, Elena Marks is dead. You have that very very touching scene with um, her telling the Hulk that she always loved him, and then David later telling the Tombstone that he always loved her uh, and he thinks she loved him though she never said it and once again you didn't have comic book pilots end like this on you, such you a didn't, stirring emotional mo- you no. didn't have pilots end like this they normally ended with a little tag scene that set up what the series was going to be like so and it ties in with the episode and like you've said before the continuity of this Elena Marks's death plays out through the entire series an awful lot of TV shows of this time if they alluded to the pilot again it was only in a sense of this is where it all began The Six Million Dollar Man being a prime example of a show where the pilot was referred to quite often but it was kind of an alternate reality version of the pilot that we didn't see yeah yeah, because wasn't the pilot just like weren't there scenes added and stuff like that? Yeah, there were scenes added, dialogue changing, and if you watch the opening credits, you're led to believe Oscar Goldman was there from the very beginning, which he plainly wasn't. Yeah, and not at all, actually. He's not even in the episode. <laughs> Did, did he show up in the second I'm trying to remember the second pilot. Yeah, Oscar, Oscar Goldman shows up from the second pilot, because what's really odd is Oscar Goldman is in Cyborg, the novel, but for some reason wasn't in the pilot movie, which oh, I yeah, did uh, Like Darren McGavin was, and God, he was Darren ass. McGavin brilliant. And if Darren McGavin had stayed with the series, kind of just how TV is at the time, I think they would have toned his character down. But it would have been much better to have an antagonistic leader of OSI. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the Hulk pilots. <laughs> um, no, but but you know the series is set up. I mean, the, you know, there's McGee. I'm gonna find this creature. Uh, you know, David Banner is thought to be dead, and yep. he needs to let the world think that he is dead until they can blah 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 blah. And McGee's got the the big plaster cast of his foot, which is actually Bigfoot's foot from the Six Million Dollar Man. <laughs> with that skeevy cop from yep. earlier in the thing, like se- ultra seventies, you know, you know, he drinks like Pap's Blue Ribbon and <laughs> like goes home and wears his wife beater and has like really, really low class pornography lying around the house. <laughs> I just, I just get that from this guy. It's all that mustache that that dude has. Um, oh dear! So I don't yeah. know why I create complex backstories for characters that are just there to serve a function, but uh, but you do. So. <laughs> so th- this was followed up by the second pilot, a death in the family, which, like you said earlier on, follows the other template that episodes will follow. Mm-hmm. Notable, I thought, for this being the only episode where we see David unkempt and dirty. You're absolutely right. We never Ooh. see that again. In the opening scenes, he's he's still wearing the white coat from the end of the pilot. So we're not given any idea. Yeah, he's not shaven. He looks tired. And we're not given any idea as to how much time has passed, but you get the idea he's a little bit smelly. You would never see this again. But what we would see again is David stumbling into a situation where something bad is happening and he has yeah. to help out in the Hulk. Yeah. This is a, a much lesser 
pilot, if you want to call it that, than the other one. I can only presume it's because he was showing the two different sides the show would follow. His actual quest for a cure in this episode is very much a subplot. Where this episode scores is, one, it's got Gerald McCraney in it. Yes, for like one of his 16 appearances on the show. Well, five, but still. I love Gerald McCraney. I've done since Simon and Simon. And I think he's a brilliant actor. In Deadwood, he's brilliant. He's brilliant in the A-Team movie. Major Dad. Yeah, Major Dad. He's a brilliant actor, Gerald McCraney. Um, And also notable as a kid for being one of my favorites simply because of the amount of screen time the Hulk gets. Oh, yeah. The Hulk's all over this one. Yeah. There's four Hulk outs in this episode, something that would never happen again. Well, it was two hours, so that's two. Well, it wasn't quite two per hour, but it also has a kind of a sci-fi legendary TV connection with uh, and now his name has escaped me what's his name the voice of Kit oh William Daniels William Daniels, Daniels. The doctor. yes uh, who plays the evil doctor um, I can only imagine that this is the people from St. Elsewhere saw this and said oh he can play a doctor yeah um, <laughs> also I'm was Broadway's crazy. John Adams yep. brilliant in that role but he's he's a he's bad in this yeah, he's he's an irredeemable scumbag, isn't he? Margaret. Yeah. <laughs> I just hate the way he says that woman's name. But it's basically, there's this very pretty girl who's uh, crippled. Uh, I feel very bad for this actress because she would return to the Incredible Hulk as someone who was blind. Okay. She cornered the market on crippled girls then. Um, I'll get to those two characters when we talk about the... The, the, the ending the show never got um, but it, it shows one that David cares and, and, and I think it's very important even though I think it's it's not as good as the first pilot and really as an episode it's not all that good no. uh, when you compare it to the rest of the series but it shows one thing that David even though he has this problem will not abandon someone in need and that is so important to me for the character of David Banner, it's something Edward Norton got in the yeah. Incredible Hulk film. Well, where... and it also, it's useful in the, the the context of the series in explaining why he just doesn't get the hell out of Dodge mm-hmm. whenever he's hulked out. You know, I have to take care of something. This girl is in danger. It's also where we would have the very fugitive, fugitive-esque thing where because David is a doctor, he knows something's wrong. Yeah. He knows something's up. With this, the 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 heiress play. I forget the girl's name that plays her. Laurie something, isn't it? Uh, Laurie very, Prank. Very lovely, uh, lovely actress. I thought. I thought she was rather attractive. But and he got to see. I guess they got the track suits out from the six million dollar man to show yeah. the jogging sequences uh, with her and her dad. But again, even though it's not the best of episodes, all of the characters are pretty rich. Yeah, and have good backstories, and you feel something for them. Yeah, and it's well performed, and then, like you said, there's tons of Hulk material in it. And uh, but you have Gerald McCraney, and you know what? He doesn't play the same character twice on this show. Nope. And I think that really speaks to him as an actor, that he is able to to uh, reappear on certain, and he doesn't really change appearance except maybe once where he has a full beard. So you, or in one episode he's sha- you know he's completely clean shaven, but and yeah he plays a cop twice but that's two very different cop characters, 
But just seeing him, and you know right away that he's got a thing for the girl, but he's the farmhand, so... You know, that, that, that can't quite work out the way he wants it to. And it's just like, all of this kind of co- comes together. I really... I have to admit, when I rewatch the series, I watch this, but it, it's kind of to get through it to get to the series proper. Yeah, it's it's not it's not great, but it isn't awful. It's perfectly yeah. serviceable. There's loads of Hulk in it. It's got nice performances. It's perfectly serviceable episode. It's not bottom of the barrel. No, no. <laughs> there there are plenty plenty bottom of the barrel to get to as well mm. but it sets up the him on the run but it also has a little bit of him trying to cure himself yeah. because he's in this area because of some machine they have that he needs uh it originally called return of the hulk since then it's become death in the family i'm always very disappointed that i never see the joker uh beat <laughs> jason todd to death with a tire with a, with a crowbar and then leave him to explode but you know i, I guess i can't really um yeah, really blame it, the the show for that. It was also one of the first episodes where we get the. There's not really a good reason for David to leave here, other than that's the premise of the show. Yeah, and they had a big enough compound that he could have hid if McGee showed up. Yeah, and he could have just lived out there in the because they did seem to be in the middle of nowhere. She was obviously very wealthy. She could have funded his searching for a cure, other than the series has to end with him moving on. (laughs) You know, I never thought about that, but you're absolutely right. He could have lived out in a shack. He could have had a Hulk out. He would have been in the woods. And he he was living with two people who knew of his problem and could have helped him. And there are a number of episodes like that when you watch the series where you sat there going, there's actually no reason for him to leave here (laughs) other than that's the show one of the things that would become that's a that's a hallmark of of johnson's writing in in particular but would become kind of a hallmark of the show is the uh, the, the old man that saved uh the woman the girl's life uh when she became quote-unquote crippled because it turns out that it was all in her head you know he talks about his son and his son dying in vietnam and it's just it, it, it's it's a minor point but for me, as somebody that really likes character, it informs why this man is the way he is. Uh, yeah, you and kind of feel you kind of feel bad for him. Yeah, and it's Johnson paying attention to his supporting cast. Mm-hmm. Um, I've read in a number of different places that Bixby was not an easy man to get on with. He was not an easy man to work with, but he was a very generous actor, in which. If a, a scene or an episode of the Hulk wasn't about David, he, he didn't let his ego get in the way. He was more than happy to give other actors the moment in the spotlight, which is why they've said the show was able to attract so many good actors to it. Oh, yeah, and, and it did. It had a bunch of excellent, you know, just probably guys that were under, or guys and, and women as well, uh, that were under contract with Universal that, you know, like like Lance Galt. Um, yeah. <laughs> Who I only mentioned because he is at the beginning of every episode of Hey Kids Comics. He is. Um, and it's so sad that I knew that's who it was the first <laughs> no, time it's I heard not. it. <laughs> but we move into the, the first season, and what are your what are the episodes that stand out here for you? Uh, well, before we go into the episode, oh, I'm sorry. We, we need to establish the, ep- the, the first season was rushed into production. Similar yeah, to The Six Million Dollar Man, I've read Johnson got the season pickup and thought they were going on the air in September of 78 
given him plenty of time to write scripts. <laughs> a show fell through. I don't know which show it was. They called him and said, you're going on the air in March. This was in December. Whoops. So it's an extremely rushed first season, which is why I think we get so many episodes in the first season that are rip-offs of films. And also, maybe if he had some time to really consider the series more, there, the show wouldn't have had as many growing pains as it did yeah. through the first season. And that's not a that's not a criticism as saying this is bad. No, nope. but you know there are some some differences in the transformations, especially yeah. And, so in the, and, in the go on, sorry. And and in how you know the how he works and how David is as a character, but it's still a very decent you know six or seven episodes. Yeah, it's a strong season. I mean, three of them are movie ripoffs. The yes. first episode proper is a blatant ripoff of Rocky with the evil sensei from uh, Karate Kid yep. as, as playing Henry Rocky. Rocky, and he's actually called Rocky. They don't even attempt to hide. <laughs> That they're ripping it off. I'm glad you said it because if you didn't, I was going yeah, to. There, um, there is no, there is no pretension here. No, there is I, no subtlety. No, nope, and Kenneth Johnson wrote that one. Yeah. So, so he obviously banged that out in a weekend. Seven Four Seven is a ripoff of all the airport movies that you've ever seen with the plane mm-hmm. being forced to land by a civilian. But in this case, it's David, which does give us one of the best transformations of the series the ever. Longest transformation yep. where he's fighting it yeah where david is forced to bring the plane into a landing and he's hulking out whilst doing it Uh, and and he's forcing the transformation back to land the plane and And then earthquakes happen yeah and brandon cruz is in that one Uh, earthquakes happen is the obligatory um what's it movie disaster movie ripoff but scores because it is actually about david trying to cure himself and let's not forget Never Give a Trucker an Even Break. I was going to give Never Truck Give a Trucker an Even Break its own section. Oh, okay, very good. We will <laughs> because, wait for that one no, then. No, 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 we'll, we'll, we'll go into that one straight away. Never Give a Trucker an Even Break is, what would you say, 50% stock footage from Duel? Yes, and then 50% of Bill Bixby and that girl that they try to make attractive and it never quite <laughs> it never quite pans out <laughs> i mean because at the end of the episode she basically says i will sleep with you yeah and it's one of the few episodes that doesn't end with him walking off mm-hmm. so that's quite rare for that but what's it's particularly notable that episode never give a trucker for one steven spielberg having his contracts changed Mm-hmm. so that footage from his films can never be used in TV shows again without his permission. And two, for it actually having the line, I've really got to buy some shirts that stretch. You see, every you know when you, want, when you look at episode, episode lists where people are like, this is the worst, these are the worst episodes of The Incredible Hulk, this one is always on it. I can never put it on there because of that line of, yeah. the, of him. And it's a beautiful comedic beat. Yeah, beautifully and delivered it, by Bixby. It feels like, a, like an improv line. Yeah, like and, Johnson's like just just go just just say something, and he just looks down and goes, "I really got to buy shirts that stretch." Yeah. And and also well worth watching if you're familiar with Jewel for the amount of effort they go to to make that footage fit. Like yeah. the shots of the car are uh, McLeod, just him, isn't it? Um, yeah. What's his name? Dennis Weaver. 
<laughs> played McLeod on his own. So for far away shots in the show, it's two people in the car. So they have to keep contriving reasons for the other guy in the car to keep ducking down. <laughs> so that the exterior shots match the interior shots. Like he'll drop something and bend down and we'll see an external shot. Or he'll reach over to the back of the car for something and we'll see an external shot. And they go to great lengths to make the footage match up. I I hope the editor of that got like a bonus or something because <laughs> God knows they deserved it. Yeah, I mean it's just it's just amazing to watch. Yeah, because Ken Johnson is completely unrepentant about using stock footage on TV shows, isn't he? On the audio commentaries for Six Million Dollar Man, he's like, "We had a deadline to meet. We've got a show to get out. If I have to use stock footage to meet that deadline, then so be it." Well, he's it, it, it's it's nice that somebody who you know, like we were alluding to earlier, kind of considers himself not better than the material, but probably built for more classical, uh, classical themes and, and, and that type of, you know, you know, V was originally supposed to be about the Holocaust and he yeah. couldn't do that. So he made it science fiction. Um, it's nice to see somebody like that be like, nah, this is a job. We've, we've got to get this out. I mean, when, you know, Prometheus, I was well, I finally sat down and watched the commentary for Prometheus and that whole beginning sequence with the with the flooding and everything is taken from another movie completely yep. which is why Bix has to wear a certain outfit and all that and it's just like when you watch it it's so smooth and granted these were not meant to be shown on plasma you know like you know 50 inch screens with high definition it was television in the 70s yeah. Where... So you, it's remarkable it looks as good as it does. I mean, yeah, when you watch Never Give a Trucker and even break over and over again, you see the flaws. But the first time I watched that, I didn't even know that there was stock footage being used in it. I recognized it only because... I don't remember if this was on first run in the late 70s, but I recognized it as a young kid because Duel had been on very close to that episode over here. And it was purely a coincidence of scheduling that I was going, I saw this recently in something else. And I think it's where I realized TV uses lots of stock footage. Now they have to. I yeah. Mean, it's, it, you know, you're, you're churning out material and that, you know, filming is expensive. So it might be just easier to use some, uh, some stock footage. You know, the first season, you know, the, the, the 10 episodes basically that comprise the first season it's not the best of them. They're not terrible. I mean, the B, the final round is a Rocky ripoff. Yeah. But it still kind of works well, then as a you story. Get, you get two episodes in a row that are two of my favorites of the season, of the, the series. The, the Beast, Beast Within, Within is an <laughs> exceptionally good episode from David's point of view. Again, he's actively seeking a cure. What I liked about this one was the other scientist knows who Banner is. Yeah which I like because I often thought that that should be some, the circles that he's moving in. Surely he was on the lecture circuit. Surely he's had books and papers published. So that would have to make him doubly careful when he's in that environment that people don't recognize him. Well, it comes to, to bite him later in, uh, in an episode with the cave Hulk. Yeah. Um, well, not bite him, but it, but it does. It's just like that comes into play of guilt model and murder is go on. 
is more of a noir type yeah. story. And that's why I love this one. I This is my favorite episode of the first season. But I love how we don't know what happened mm-hmm. until pretty much the end of the episode. Yep. And it it's, explores him going, have I killed somebody? Yeah, and it replays the scene in the film, um, the Hulk won't kill because David Banner won't kill. And it's, be- it's a beautifully structured off-model episode in that it begins with Banner coming out of the Hulk out. Mm-hmm. And so we are in his position. We have no idea what's gone on. He's waking up from the Hulk out. He doesn't know what, because normally we see the Hulk out. And he's wandering around this room and there's a dead body there. And then for the first three quarters of the episode, he's piecing together what happened. And we see the first Hulk out in a Rashomon-like point of view from the other characters in the scene. Because he has to know one way or another, has he killed somebody? And then it ends with McGee almost seeing the transformation. Mm -hmm. Such a during thing to do so early in the series run. It's a brilliant episode. It's off format. It's wonderfully structured. It's wonderfully played. It's got brilliant guest stars. Lonnie Anderson's in it. Uh, Jeremy Brett, who would go on to be Sherlock Holmes, is in it. I think that's the one with Sherry Jackson in, isn't it? From Star Trek? I think it is. So it's got a brilliant guest cast. It's it's a great episode. There's also that one moment where David is watching like news footage with a bunch of people and that other female hitchhiker is like, do you want yeah. to stick together because I'm kind of scared? And I'm just like, wow, that's incredibly trusting of you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, you, you wouldn't get that now, would you? Uh, I like Terror in Times Square quite a bit. Uh, mainly because you get to see the Hulk running down Times Square. Which is a, a, an iconic shot, but once you spot the green pumps... <laughs> that does kind of take you yeah, out of the moment, doesn't it? it? Does, it's like, yeah. Also notable, Bixby didn't go to New York. And nope. once you spot that, it's hard to not spot it. Only Ferrigno, Johnson, and a skeleton crew went to New York. And all of, I love how he talks about how all of Lou's family came and they all talk like him because they're from Brooklyn. Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, so the Times Square stuff's good. In every other respect, this is a protection racket episode that the Mm. AT did every other week. But I do like the transformation at the end where the cab drivers. And just, just the dialogue and how the cabbie freaks out. It's yeah. just great. Uh, I'm a big fan of 747, mainly because I think it has a very solid story. I mean, they take the time to show the bad guys like at the very beginning of the episode. Mm. And you see what's happening and everything's set up. And you're right, it is like one of the... It is it is filmed and paced exactly like a, you know, like Airport 77 and stuff like that. But it still works because you have that transformation. I also have a lot of affection for the Hulk Breaks Las Vegas. Oh, well, before you move on from 747... Oh, okay. How did he get his bag back? Um, the kid he, grabbed it. He hulks out on the plane. They, no, they, no, they, he, no, no, he doesn't have they, it at the end. Oh. He hulks out on the plane, he runs off. The last shot of the episode, he's on the phone with the place he was trying to get to. They said that the doctor you need has gone off in his mission. He won't be there for 12 months. He walks off without his bag, which is presumably still in customs. How does he get his bag back? Yeah, he goes to the airport. Goes <laughs> Open, to the lost, lost, bag. lost, lost property. <laughs> I never thought about that. I was creating this elaborate backstory <laughs> where the kid 
picked up the bag from the airport and met with him later and they had coffee or something. <laughs> he was looking for a father figure, but you know, David just couldn't be that for him. So, and I like to think that, uh, the dude that they were sitting with, that him and his mom were sitting with that, uh, that they hooked up, uh, yeah. because of this whole and thing. He, and he it, gave it, his property, but it, it never, <laughs> it never worked out between the man and, and, and the mother, but just because they went through that trying time together, you know, and we do have the he never has a second cup of coffee nope. gag so, with those old people. But again, it's one of those things that as a doctor, David would look at it and go, that's not right. Yeah, which he <laughs> does a lot, doesn't he? Um, I don't know why I like the Hulk breaks. No, I know why I like the Hulk breaks Las Vegas, because it's the first time where Jack McGee is shown in a heroic light. Yeah. You know, he's there to help his friend. And there's something really bad happening. And I do like the fact that David gets thrown down a flight of stairs and that, that mobster's just like, come on, punk, I'll take you down. And the Hulk just comes running up. <laughs> Beautiful shot. I yeah. like it a lot. Um, and again, David is, of course, hanging out with the most attractive dealer in the in the casino that he works at. It's the way of things. Who's all about him because he's the sensitive 70s man. <laughs> He'll listen to my feelings, so I'll give it up. Um, life and death meh yeah the the problem with life and death is it's so incredibly padded in between the first two Hulk outs mm-hmm. isn't it he, he, he comes out of the first Hulk out and then spends the majority of the episode just wandering around in a daze before he hulks out again and solves the problem and it is one of those I do often think that maybe they should have done an episode where after the first Hulk out the whole thing is solved and he leaves, and then the second half of the episode is a completely different storyline. That and, would have been interesting to see. Yeah, and then the final Hulk out wraps up that storyline. Rather than have episodes like this for the first for 20 minutes in the middle of it, Bixby's just wandering around going, oh, I am drugged. Oh, I cannot think. Oh, and that's essentially all he does for 20 minutes. Yeah, it's <laughs> just not the strongest one. Earthquakes happen... I'm like you. I like the disaster movie feel of this. Yeah, and I like the idea that David is actively seeking a cure in this one. And there's that scene at the beginning where he goes to get his fake ID and the woman uh, tries to rip him off. And he's just like, you know what? I'm just going to go somewhere else. Yeah. <clears throat> Went to the doctor. <laughs> Bills and all that. Uh-huh. But I, I like the fact that he's trying. David Banner is the worst liar on the face of the planet, by the way. Yes, he is. <laughs> Every time he gets, well, um, I, uh, <laughs> you know, you, you'd figure when you're out on the street for as long as you have been that you would pick up how to completely swindle somebody. But no, every episode, if he has to lie about something, it's uh, it, it doesn't go well for him. It and ends at up the oddly. And, you know, in the beginning, he's disguised and trying not to be found out. After the first Hulk out, he's found out. And it's this drama of him and the other people trying to get out. And they think they're all going to die. And that one guy keeps wanting to just kill David right then and there. <laughs> this is all your fault. We're going to kill you and leave you here. But, and then we have, like, the the, the, the burning Hulk out, which, uh, ow, I burned my hands. So... <laughs> Waterfront story uh, with what's his name from um, Hill Street Blues, and he played Doogie Hauser's dad. Is in this movie? I forget. Yep. I forget his name, but uh, this is 
it's decent. It's average, isn't it? It's all right. Yeah. Um, it's sorry, a kind of phrase. The kind of phrase. I mean, and, but again, it's another example of this very, very attractive woman wanting to be with David. And they even go fishing together. Oh, that's sweet. Uh, I think things really ramp up with season two. Yes. Especially with this opening, Married. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, the only problem with Married is it is exactly the same plot as the Bionic Woman. Two-parter on the Six Million Dollar Man. Right See, down to I've never edit. seen that, so interesting. Um, when you get the DVD set of season two of Six Mill, you will be watching it going, right, okay, Kenneth, you just crossed some <laughs> names out, didn't you? <laughs> Uh, certainly for the ending, which is pretty much exactly the same. The rain, the storm, the lightning, her having the breakdown. It's pretty much exactly the same in The Bionic Woman. That sounds really good, actually. Yeah, oh, yeah, it is good. It's it's uh, an excellent episode of Six Mail. It's a good episode of The Hulk as well. But it's one of those things that once you've seen them both... I think more than anything, between the death of his first wife... And the death of Carolyn Fields. This is like the stock footage from the show that they show over and over. Especially the dream sequences where, you know, she's getting on the bus and Death is driving the bus and he's running after her. Yeah, the shot of him running after with the the lay around his neck. Yeah, it's very powerful. I, 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 I get a little choked up with this because there's a line at the end of this that describes how I feel about my wife is um, Punky Brewster's older brother. Um, <laughs> it is it. Yeah, that, that's that's like her older that's stepbrother. That's Sully L. Like Moonfry's that. brother. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Excellent. Um, he, uh, you know, he goes, you weren't married that long, and Bill Bixby just, he smiles. And he goes, oh, it would never have been long enough. Yeah. And that just, uh, I'm, I've told you in the past, I am, I am a softy, I am a sucker, I will cry at movies and not make any bones about it. And that always just, uh, just right there at the end. Just and the be- fact that he's sat on the beach with the wreckage of a house around him. Yeah. And he's, I mean, he's not, he doesn't walk off at the end either, he just sits on the beach and the, the waves lap up at his feet and the credits roll. Because, you know, the beginning of the of this is, is pretty standard Hulk fare. You know, he's looking for a cure. I think what really starts to differentiate this one is the first Hulk out happening under hypnosis. And, and Johnson points out, and you can see it, once he points it out, you can't miss it. When he goes, I was asleep. There's a look on Marriott Hartley's face like, oh, crap. Yeah. <laughs> And we get the brilliant scene in, in the hypnotism bit where one of the few times Bixby and Farino got to work together. Mm-hmm. Where he's caging the Hulk in his subconscious. Uh, and that's a really good scene. Uh, only notable for the green makeup coming off. I, I also like the fact that apparently they filmed all of the Bixby and the white eyes scenes in the same day because he hated hated yeah. the contact lenses. Yeah, he loathed those contact lenses. And apparently he hated having his shirt off too. Which is kind of weird, but you know, people are people are strange. I think it's funny that the second Hulk out is more standard for the series, where he's just getting beaten up by a couple of guys. One of them is Frank Orsati, who was Bixby's stunt double, and would go on to direct some of the episodes. Mm. 
Um, in this um, Age of TV Heroes book by Tomorrow's, there's a couple of behind-the-scenes shots of the Married episode that are really quite nice. Bixby and Johnson and um, Marriott Hartley filming the scene where she gives mouth-to-mouth to the little boy. And then a shot of them filming in the desert with a big crane where they're just about to drop the net over the Hulk. Also, apparently, in this, uh, Marriott Hartley had just given birth around the time of this episode. And when they were filming the sequences towards the episode break, because in the two-part version of this, um, she finds out she's going to die and goes off to the club, and he goes off searching for her. And when he drives by the restaurant and can't see her car, that's the to-be-continued right. uh, moment. But she's wearing, like, this silk blouse, and apparently her child was on set with her, and every time she, the child would cry, she would lactate <laughs> and ruin the shirt. So they would have to get another shirt, which I, I find those things kind of, <laughs> kind of funny, funny to know, funny <laughs> to know about. But no, I think what makes this work is that you believe that these people are in love. Well, that was one of the things that they did very well on the show, was yes, there was always pretty attractive girls in the it was only reciprocated by Banner when they were as intelligent as he was. <laughs> that is very true. <laughs> With one one or two notable exceptions. Yeah, he, was, was he was kind of pretentious. Yes. Well, that's fair enough. He's going to want somebody who can challenge him intellectually as well. Because he was portrayed in the series as being incredibly bright. Mm-hmm. And Bixby played that really well. Because I think it's harder to portray real intelligence in, in somebody it's a much more difficult thing to do that than to portray somebody who is perhaps not quite as intelligent because there's lots of ticks you can employ it's, it's back it's got did it quite well on quantum leap yes it's the idea did. that the actor has to be able to portray the idea that he's so smart he's seven or eight steps ahead of everyone else and bixby did it in such a way that he never let other people feel that they were um, dumber than him he always let them get to the conclusion that he'd already got to um, you mentioned a show that is part of uh, my list of the worst fan fiction ideas I've ever had, and that's uh, Sam Beckett leaping into Dr. David Banner and turning into the Hulk. Hey, that would have been cool! Because um, they were, were going to do a quantum leap where he leapt into Thomas Magnum, <laughs> so that would have worked. Well, that's just because Donald Belisario cannot let Magnum P.I. go, most notably recently in the show NCIS, yep. where the character Tony Dinozo is obsessed with Magnum P.I. Yep. And he mentions the fantastic four-season opener where Magnum's just treading water for 45 minutes. Uh, though I, I do think they missed the boat of having it as a TV show because you could have had Tom Selleck come on as... Anyways, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> I still think they need to have Admiral Al Calavici show up in a scene too, but that's just me. Um, <laughs> not kidding, but I, I think Married is just one of those quintessential episodes. And again, if you have a chance to listen to the commentary, do so. Yeah. Because not only does he give like you know like little funny things like Bill Bixby's hands moving between shot to shot because the continuity wasn't right. Uh, or just describing, you know, how certain things were shot or tell, but it's the the funny behind the scenes story, and him talking about Bill Bixby, and Bill Bixby's life, and 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 what a tragedy it was that that he died, uh, and you could tell that they were, I don't know if they were uh, they were probably good friends. There was probably a lot of contention while they were filming, but 
when you work with somebody that happens. So yeah, and they, they they focus a lot on the third season as well. His acrimonious divorce with Brenda mm-hmm. Benet, and then the death of his son Christopher, and that's mentioned in in detail quite a lot on the commentary. And, and it's a lot of it's very sad. It is, but I think it lends more emotional weight to the series because yeah. he was obviously using that to draw on uh, to play this character. Because uh, you know nothing, nothing begets anger like being angry all the time. So, mm. um, I was a little over two years old when that show came on. Oh wow! <laughs> and it's really funny because this is this is married, and the next episode also becomes a hallmark of this show. Is that they'll have this really great two-hour episode, and then the biggest piece of fluff right after. <laughs> yeah, and the Antiwoc terror or horror is one of those. It has Lance Legault, who we've talked about, mm. but the, the other guy, the guy, the guy that plays the dad was in the second Captain America film as a heavy. Is it Bill so, Looking? Something like that. Um, Bill Looking. Little... I think it's Bill Looking, which means that Billy Looking was General Colonel Lynch on the A-Team, <laughs> and Lance Legault was Colonel Decker on the A-Team. So both of them would go on to pursue the A-Team. I love 80s television. Yeah. <laughs> we can connect all of these things together. I mean, it's it's a kind of a throwaway episode. Yeah, David's in a small town. Uh, I do like how they kind of show you how they do the strength effects uh, towards the end by showing how he was going to fake lifting the rock and everything. <laughs> uh, we have Ricky. Which is quite a good one. Very similar to an episode of Quantum Leap called Jimmy. Mm-hmm. But still a, a good episode. Um the guy in it would go on to be in V with Kenneth Johnson, the guy who plays Jimmy. Ricky. Yes. Another, not Ricky, Jimmy. I'm mixing up my Jimmys with my Rickies. Uh, who, what's his name? Who usually plays... Uh, biker types, doesn't he? Like, like, you know, biker types, but here he's doing a very effective job playing somebody who has a, a mental handicap. Mm, and he's a really lovely character, he's Ricky. Um, but it's also the I'm David Banner. I know better than everybody, so I'm going to get him to this special school that's probably very expensive, yeah, and I'm, then leave at the end. I'm Bye. With his family, yeah. Uh, Gerald McCraney makes his uh, second appearance. Yeah, one of his lesser appearances. Well, he's he's kind of like a bad guy. So, uh, <laughs> Rainbow's End. Yeah. <sighs> I have no memory of this episode. Oh, it's the race horse one. Yeah, it's the horse racing one. Um, But next, we get one of the best episodes of the show's run. And something that you and I have discussed in emails uh, off the air, A Child in Need, where we get one of the uh, social issue episodes, but handled so well. Handled exceptionally well. Um, Because, you know, he comes across, you know, as working as a groundsman is the Wikipedia entry. Uh, says he's basically the gardener of the school um, comes across a boy who's being abused and instead of having the Hulk just go beat the guy up and save the kid at the end they, they take the time and I think the actor playing his father uh, really sells this that he's not necessarily evil 
No. He just has a problem. Some yeah. Problems See, we, we, we were contrasting this to the, the Superman issue of Grounded. Exactly. Where um, they, they follow essentially the same template. The dad's abusing his children. And my argument was, in the Superman issue, they, they go to no effort whatsoever to establish the whys, the background. Why is this happening? Why is the father like this? This episode does as good a job as can be expected in a 49-minute episode of television made in 1978. Mm-hmm. It establishes that the father is not a bad guy. What he's doing is reprehensible. But the episode goes to great trouble to say why he's doing it. And there's the wonderful bit at the end that plays off the whole there's always a bigger bully thing where mm-hmm. the Hulk is the bully and the the guy who's bullying his child just tries to bully him and the Hulk just stands there and takes it and just shoves him back mm-hmm. and it also has the thing that he's taking his anger out on somebody who can take it and not just a helpless young boy and you do get the feeling from the end of this one that David has actually genuinely helped somebody because we yeah. see from the end of the episode, the father is taking steps to ensure that this doesn't happen again. He's in some kind of program, or he's yeah, he's a not a, he's not home. Yeah, he's he's you know like and and they're 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 kind of like he's coming home soon. Yeah, so it's not like he's coming home today. Yeah, they've not split the family up. They've not wrapped it all under the carpet that this was done in twenty minutes and now he's going to be okay, which lesser shows would have done. They've established he's not at home. He's getting help. And you get the idea that this is going to be an ongoing thing, probably for the rest of his life. But and that there's going to be moments where he's going to, he may have a relapse and yep. they have to deal with it, but yep. they have well, the, the tools f- to yeah, deal with it. Exactly. The family now are aware of the problem and can do something about it. It and is it's everything e- that that issue of Superman wasn't. And it's probably easier to get help later on because now it's not a big secret that the woman's trying to hide yeah so because at first and i thought this was brilliant they made it seem like the mother was the abuser yeah they did they do a really good job of flipping it around and Um, it's just like wow that's an because mark wade did that in an episode in an issue of impulse where a little boy was being abused and they thought it was the dad but it turned out to be the mom and it was this really heart-wrenching story uh, that, if I'm remembering correctly, ended in her getting help. Now, you know, we, we talked about that Superman one. Uh, I talked about it in an email to your show, Hey Kids Comics, and I said, to me, it was kind of satisfying to see Superman go up the stairs after the dad. But I have to completely agree with you that, at the end of the day, that's cathartic, but it doesn't solve anything, and it doesn't deal with the issue that's going on. No, no, no. My, my general, your gut reaction to somebody who abuses children is to kick the crap out of them. Yes. And they would deserve it. There's, there's no excuse for it. But as you say, it doesn't solve the problem. If anything, it, it exacerbates the problem. Whereas this episode does everything that issue of Superman didn't do. It establishes the problem. The characters recognize there's a problem. The characters take it into their own hands to solve the problem. Yes, they're helped by David and the Hulk, but ultimately mm-hmm. he buggers off at the end of the episode. But you do get the distinct impression that they are going to carry on being helped. And he has genuinely done something for this family that would not have happened if he hadn't been there. The, the only part of this episode that gets me today where I go... That wouldn't happen today. Is I know what you're going to say. The boy spends the night at David Payne's apartment. That's creepy. Well, the the whole opening scene, I've worked in a high school. The (laughs) amount of checks that you have to go through to work with children 
is it's, there's tons of them. So there is no way nowadays that David would just get a job at a school. I mean, I presume it's the same over in the US, but over yeah, here, you've oh, got to be oh. CRB checked. The police have got to confirm that you've never had any issues, that you've never got any convictions in anything, all of that stuff. Well, they're supposed to. Let me, let me say that. They're right. supposed to. Doesn't always happen, uh, especially in smaller school districts. But, uh, but yeah, he's just like, can I spend the night with you? I'm like... Okay, I shouldn't be creeped out by this because there's absolutely nothing reprehensible going on here. But that's still kind of weird because not only that, he calls the nurse and the nurse is like, oh, he's at your apartment? That's okay. Yeah, that's okay. That's not a problem at all. (laughs) I mean, but it's not that he brings him there after the first talk out, which happens. It's that they go there before then. Like, hey, can I just hang out here? Uh, you really need to get out of here, or Benson and Stabler are going to kick down my door, <laughs> and I'm going to be grilled, and it's not going to be good, because I'll change it. Kid, just leave, because yeah. it's just bad. Get out. But, no, probably one of the best episodes of the entire series. Yeah, very good, uh, very good. Episode. Because you have two very good Hulkouts, too. Yeah. That's the thing, is that they don't lose you know, the, the action part, which is where the kids are. Because, let's face it, the main plot of this episode is not for the young kid watching this episode. No, I although mean, the kid could probably relate to the child in some way. Yeah, but well, mainly it's for the adult to engage the adult on some level. Yeah. Um, this is fi- f- <laughs> this is followed by part one of a two-part episode that is not two-part. Um, <laughs> another path. Which uh, with blind Chinese philosopher Lee Sung, mm. and this is my gag for the episode. If you need an Asian actor to play a martial arts master, better get Mako. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear God! I think this one's dull. It is very dull, but what I like about it is that it shows David trying other things to control his anger. Yeah, and uh, this episode, throughout the entire run of the series, David had three coats. He had the white one that he leaves at the end of the pilot, he had the denim one, and he had a three-quarter length black one that he wore when it was cold or dark. Yes. Uh, In the course of the series, all three of those coats will get destroyed during a Hulk out. Yet, oddly, all three of those coats survive right to the end of the series. In this episode, he loses the black three-quarter length one, because that's what he's wearing when he hulks out in the truck at the beginning. And that that was really weird about this episode, is that the Hulk out happens right there. Yeah. In within, the first couple minutes of the yeah, episode. Within four or five minutes of the episode beginning. What I always thought would have been cool about this one if he'd hulked out, but the coat hadn't ripped. So the Hulk could have been wearing the three-quarter length coat. <laughs> I thought that would have been cool. I, I will admit that uh, during the first season and getting into this one, by this point, I think it's, um, I think it's you know, he starts tearing it off. I always preferred to see him with the shirt on. And torn yeah. about him. Was, was that an, uh, a network mandate? Because it seemed to me that in the first season it was stitched to not fall off. Do you know what I mean? When he's running yeah. and fighting, it's quite obviously sewn to not come off. And then by the time you get to the second series, you're right, he's just pulling it off. If it was a network mandate, it's probably because, according to Johnson, The Incredible Hulk had a high demographic of women watching it. So give them what they want. Mm which is loose chest. Yeah. But as a visual, I always liked the shirt to stay on. It, it, it looks cool. Uh, yeah, it just looks good. 
and I mean, I don't mind that they changed it. It's not like going to be my, my sticking point, my bridge too far for the series. Like after that, every episode was crap. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, it's a, yeah, it's not an issue. I was just wondering if you knew why that would be. No, uh, unfortunately, I don't think they. Johnson never talked about it in the commentaries, and I really need to do more research uh, into the series. So, right. but got a couple. Some forgettable, some epi- fun episodes. Alice in Disco Land, which was awful. Mm. Um, Killer Instinct, which kind of explores all of the themes from a child in need, but with an adult. Yeah, and that, that was a good death guest performance from Danny Miller. Yeah, oh, he's excellent. He's excellent later in the series, and yeah. he has a little uh, role in V that I like quite yes. a bit, too. Yes, he does. So Kill- Killer Instinct's not an awful one. One of those, it was either Killer Instinct or Child in Need, was filmed for the first season. I can't remember which one it was. I think it was A Child in Need. Right. I know one of them was held over for the second season for some reason. I don't know what that reason is. Killer Instinct also has a lot of uh, stock footage from football games. Probably so. the same stock footage that was in the $6 million dollar man episode. One of our running backs is missing. Stop the presses where you have two, count them, two women that want to get into David Banner's pants. Uh, I like this one. I think this one's a fun episode. because It is a fun episode. It centers around the idea somebody has taken a photograph of David and he has to get it back before it sees print. And there's a guy out there that is scummier than Jack McGee. Yeah. It's a fun episode. That I like that one. Pat Morita's in it, so we yep. have another Karate Kid alum in this. But... Now that you've said what you said before, it makes perfect sense. These two women want him. Badly. Yeah, probably at the same time, if he's looking. Yeah. But he just kind of looks at them as sisters. Because they're one of them is definitely not intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> She's played kind of ditzy. And you're right, he, he just kind of keeps them at arm's length, probably because he doesn't want to fight to break out. Um... But yeah, he probably could have scored that. I mean, it was the 70s. There were key parties. Come on, David, live a little. Um, and you never know if you hold cat in the middle of it. That may turn him off. <laughs> there is a porno out there. Oh, that, of course there is. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm dead serious. It took the pilot and did a porno version of it. So oh, um, I have not seen it. And nor do I think I want to. Uh, Escape from Los Santos, very forgettable on the run. Not memorable at all. Uh, Wildfire, which is (laughs) the one where he is uh, working at uh, for an oil rig, and the daughter. He. This is like one of the first, I think, episodes where it's just like David Banner just got some, and now he's going home. Right before the first Hulk out. It also has, as a guest star, Billy Green Bush, who plays um, the middleman uh, that used to work for the guy that owns Wildfire, but now works for the, ba- the, the, the bad guy, ostensibly. He'll come back in, an, in one of my favorite episodes. Um, again, wasn't this done as an episode of Quantum Leap? Yes, it was, as a matter of fact. But Sam... Sam had more sex than... Um, yeah, because Sam David conveniently forgot that he was married. <laughs> Whoops! <laughs> you know, I, you know, if I was married to Terry Hatcher, I think I'd remember that. Yeah. Um, a solitary place. I like the idea behind this one. Yes. I like the idea that he's just got fed up of being from city to city, and he takes himself off to somewhere isolated. Yeah, of he's course, off the grid. Yeah, trouble finds him. But I, I would have loved to have seen that he had a book, How to Survive in the Wilderness. 
because I don't believe for a second David Banner knows how to do all of this stuff off the top of his head. Well, given that he grew up on a farm? But I, I do think he's had quite a privileged life since becoming at, a doctor. At this point, we don't know that, which yeah. will come to one of the big uh, sticking points of the of a comment made in the pilot that drives me nuts now. Yes. Um, <laughs> But no, I like this too. It's just like, you know what? If I'm out in the middle of the woods, I can't do any harm. You know, I'll probably tear up some trees, but I can't really hurt anybody. Yeah. So screw you guys. I'm going home. And of course, the the female that stumbles upon him is lovely. Yes. And, but I never get any tension between the two of them. And I love the fact that he knows right from the beginning that she's faking her injury. Yeah. Because he's a doctor. Oh, really? It's so amazing. <laughs> he's being so condescending yeah. in that scene. And he's typical of TV doctors in that he knows everything. Yes, he's, he's, he's okay. a... Not only is he a research scientist, he's a medical doctor. I mean, at least in Quantum Leap, they established that Sam Beckett had, what was it, six degrees... Well, yeah, he was a child prodigy. He, you know, he graduated high school at sixteen. Yeah. You know, whereas he did in this, go on, yeah, sorry. he's just smart. It was in this everything. David does follow the standard TV thing that he's a doctor. Thus, he's very, very, very intelligent and knows everything. Doctor McCoy was the same. Doctor McCoy could do everything. <laughs> yes, he could, and I never really thought about it. And now that show is ruined for me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um. We have the black exploitation episode next yeah. up, um, at like a brother. Wash at the cup. <laughs> now this is one of those where you see a lot of people that you would. Ernie Hudson's in this episode. Yes, yes, he is as a heavy, and he does it very well too. But what's what amuses me is the guy that plays the main bad guy, Tony Burton. Is played by or who plays Taylor George is played by Tony Burton. Of Rocky, he, yes. But if you watch Rocky Two, the guy that plays the brother, uh, the older guy, what is that character's name? Because you have the younger brother who has, um, diabetes. Yeah. And then you have Mike, his older brother. Mike is in Rocky's corner in Rocky Two. Oh right. Which would have filmed around the same time, wouldn't it? Yeah, and and I was watching because Rocky Two just happened to be on. I'm like, hey, it's the dude from the Hulk. So this is one of those David's in the inner city has somehow become friends with everybody, uh, makes himself useful at the car wash by sewing up somebody's hand. It's meh, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's it's not a. They put him in a room with a panther. I mean. It wasn't that an episode of the 60s Batman. Yes, I think it was, as a matter of fact. Uh, we have our uh, creepy, kooky, altogether ooky episode, The Haunted. Which where... is kind of similar to the Antwerp horror. Yeah, this actually has a better ending. Because mm. when you realize that, you know, the plot is the woman's moving back to her house. Her twin sister died there, but she's the twin and David figures it out because of the heart condition, and he talks to the doctor. And the guy you think is the creepy guy isn't the creepy guy, so it's just... It turns a lot of the conventions on its head. It's still a very forgettable episode. Yeah, nah. However... Yes. Next, the, mm-hmm. the single best two-parters of the entire show. So good 
you don't even notice that part one only has one Hulk out and it happens within the first five minutes of the episode. Essentially, what you get here is one of the best kinds of television low-budget shows. It happened in Deep Space Nine, where they had no money, so they basically put Kira Norris and um, a Cardassian in a room together and had them argue for 45 minutes. This is exactly the same, really. There's a lot of stock footage in it, but David is caught in an accident when he's picked up hitchhiking by a, a woman who's driving erratically. The car crashes. David is taken into hospital, and his face is bandaged up. He doesn't know who he is. So Jack McGee shows up to interview him and the two spend the night together fleeing a forest fire. It, it is, is it's so go on, sorry. It is so good. Yeah, it's essentially a two-hander between Bixby and McGee, where McGee puts forward his point of view and his reason for following the creature, and David kind of just get flashes every now and again. It is an exceptionally well-written and well-performed episode. And it's really it's Bixby excels in this one because for like the first half of it, he doesn't remember who he is mm. and he plays that very well. But after he remembers the conversation completely changes. Yeah. And there's even moments where he's just like, I could just leave him out here. And my problem is solved. Yes. You, I could leave this man to get, die. There is a problem with a lot of these. And there are some times where David is too good to be true. And in this one, you see that, no, he is human, and he really does consider, if I leave this guy here, 50% of my problem is solved. Mm-hmm. And you yeah. get that he considers it, and he becomes a lot more antagonistic once he knows who he is. Because oh, yeah, they argue they, after yeah, that. And you can see David blames McGee mm-hmm. for at least a part of what has happened. It's just, but why did you... It, it goes from, why did you do that, to why did you do that? I mean, it's, it's the same question... But the intent behind it is completely different. Uh, the doctor from the beginning of this was one of the bad guys from uh, The Hulk Breaks Las Vegas. Right. Uh, which I, I like seeing the actors. The woman that picks him up is crazy. Yes. <laughs> yeah, all those times you were like, why does no one ever pick him up? I feel so sorry for him. And then you see here he gets lift and you wish he hadn't. Because she's got like this, she's like this, got the serious cowgirl outfit going on. She's got this thick accent. She's mad because her man left her, and then she's coming on to David. And she's just drinking, like, isn't she? Isn't she drinking while she's driving? Yes. It's just like, holy crap. <laughs> and David is just like patient, but still wants out of that car. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to pull over and let me out? <laughs> I'll walk. You're okay. I thought you wanted to ride. It's just yeah. like, holy crap. And I do love. On a goofy, like, wow, that's a kind of a flub. The shot of Lou patting, or the stuntman patting out the wig that's on, yeah, fire, that's on fire. And you see the wig shifting. Yeah, yeah, which is quite a nice little touch. <laughs> but yeah. even the Hulk outs in this are really effective. Uh, you know, he, he changes at one point uh, when they're on the run, and that's kind of when he gets his memory back. And then... um when he changes in front of McGee. Yeah. And it's the first time McGee realizes it's a guy yeah. that transforms this, into the This creature. is how he keeps disappearing. This is why I can't find him. It's a man who becomes the thing of the creature, they call him, don't they? And they, yeah, because they, they only call him Hulk once in the pilot. Um, but that this is like an important, what we would call today, a mythology episode. Mm, an art uh, episode. Yeah, they 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 don't re- they didn't really have mythology episodes in 
the 70s. It, well, this, this is why this show was so good. It had an internal continuity that, for the most part, it stuck to. Yeah, in the, in the first season, he goes from point A to point B to the final episode of mm. that season. Like, you, you see, when you watch them all together, you see him traveling across the country. It's really interesting to watch, too. Um, once again, we have a brilliant two-part episode that can be shown as a movie and really gets into the character. And we show... Oh, before you go on. Oh. Best thing about this one, the lengths that they go to to have him not lose his bag. Yeah. <laughs> the... You are absolutely right. Sir. It's tied to the thing that McGee's tied to because he's broke his leg. It's tied to McGee at some point. When they fall down the hill, it's actually strapped to Banner so that he doesn't lose it. They go to extraordinary lengths in this episode to say, look, no, at no point does he lose the bag. Here's a here's another sad admission on my part. When I was uh, 19 years old, I was traveling down to where I live right now to go to my father's wedding. And uh, I had to get a bag to carry my clothes in, and I specifically <laughs> chose a bag that looked like the one that David Banner traveled with. Oh, David. I was with my friend Heather. I go, I need to find a David Banner bag. And she gave me that look that most women in my life have given me, even though we weren't <laughs> romantically involved, but we were really good friends. She gave me that look like, really? Really? Why am I friends with you? <laughs> But we 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 have this great like introspective character driven story, and we follow that up with a backdoor pilot to another TV series that never happened. Now this is the episode that Scott Gardner's wife can sit down and watch with him because it has Rick Springfield in it. <laughs> he was in the pilot to Battlestar Galactica. Um, and this is very obvious a backdoor pilot for a series for this character. Yeah, because it's dull. Uh, yeah, I mean, Gerald McCraney's good in it, but it's just like, David Banner's there, but he's just like, hi, I got to take the week off, really. Yeah, essentially. Uh, it's sad, because Lee Sung dies, and we see that, you know, he's coming back, and it's neat to see him coming back to Lee Sung, like, you need to teach me more. And, for me, this is gonna sound weird, you know, um, another path comes before wildfire in wildfire david gets in a fight at the end of the episode and i always thought it was cool that after this episode david fights a little better yeah he doesn't just get beaten up so i it's it's very subtle but to me it was oh so he he not only taught him some you know meditation techniques he probably taught him some basic self-defense which in true martial arts, that's the point. You're trying to get out of the situation. You're not going in to fight. Yeah, which would come in useful, one would think, for David Banner. Exactly. But it's largely forgettable, like you said. It's got a really hot Asian girl in it at one point. <laughs> uh, largely filmed on a back lot, so... Yeah. <laughs> the, and it shows to me how film American filmmakers in the 70s had no idea how to shoot martial arts fight scenes. No just absolutely didn't know how to do it because everything is really close up. It's the, the cutting is terrible. You know, the, the choreography is bad. I mean, Rick Springfield knew martial arts because he would eventually not only be the human target, but he had like a syndicated series in the mid nineties where he was a private eye on a beach 
Um, I know that's an incredibly original idea. So I'll, Astonishingly I'll, original. <laughs> um, but in that show, he was doing a lot of fighting. So I, I think this is just something Rick Springfield did, and they were bringing it out in this episode. But I think I, I think we've devoted more time to this episode than it needs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the season kind of ends on a run of meh episodes, doesn't it? Yes, but it has no escape. Yep. Which is extremely important, not because it's a good episode and not because George Jefferson is in it, but because Jack Kirby is in it at the very end of the episode. Is he? When end of the episode, they have the guy that thinks he's Ernest Hemingway in the hospital, right? There's a guy sketching him. They show him that's Jack Kirby. Right. I did not know that. Not even mentioned in the credits, but when you, but if you know what Jack Kirby looks like, yeah. And you see the drawing he does, because it looks like a Jack Kirby drawing. <laughs> um, and that's why this episode will always be like, ah, Jack Kirby. Uh, I did not know Jack Kirby. The this one. only creation of his that he had a cameo in. And before Stan, Stan would have to wait to the reunion movies. Mm-hmm. And that makes me a little sad. And this is not a Stan Lee is an evil guy comment. It just makes me sad that Kirby didn't live to see his creations yeah. get to the big screen comment. So just want to gonna put the brakes on that argument right away. Cause uh, yes. one Andy and I see eye to eye on that issue. And yep. two, I'm not getting into it. <laughs> so, not what we're talking about. Uh, kindred spirits with is, cave Hulk is not a bad episode at all. A very no. young Kim Cattrall. And, uh, what's his name? What is that actor's name? Who would go on to, uh, to have a pretty decent career, too. Uh, no, Kim Cattrall is absolutely gorgeous in this episode. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, a. Martinez. Yes, I know. Is mean. one of the. Um, like the looking guy. Mm hmm. Uh, isn't, isn't the guy in this as well from the Tribbles episode of Star Trek? Isn't he in this one? Uh, I don't know. Whit Bissell? Yes, that's the one. Uh, and he would come back like uh, one of the controllers yes, in Earthquakes Happen in Prometheus. Yeah. I like this episode a lot because it, 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 like another episode, shows that there were other Hulks in this universe. Yeah, and it, gives, it just it just gives the whole series like more of a of a feel that this is a universe and not just a show you watch every week. Yeah, it's not a bad episode at all, Kindred Spirits. It's quite enjoyable. Kim Cattrall's good in it. Uh, it's nice seeing that there was another Hulk-like creature around because that ties into the first mm-hmm. later on. Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> You're talking about my favorite. Um, next up, we have uh, a great uh, episode where Christine from Night Court uh, teams up with Jack McGee to track down um, the voice of one of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. So, <laughs> Again, not an awful one. You see, a lot, this is the one of the two I was mentioning that is largely from McGee's point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you get this feeling that Marky Post wants to jump his bones. Oh, well, Marky Post is lovely. Oh, God, yes, she is. She was in the A-Team and Fall Guy and all those other things. Night she was Court. In, yeah, in the early 80s. Which I watched over and over and over again. So. I, I don't know if she's still acting. She dressed as a witch in an episode. It was great. <laughs> I'm going to stop. No, what I like about this episode is, one, like you said, it's it's one of the ones that it's from McGee's standpoint. Uh, two, we see him saddled with this young reporter that he really doesn't want to be with, but in the end shows some some 
potential. Uh, there's a little sexual tension between them, which is kind of weird. But also, it's really sad that this guy, who just happened upon the ripped shirt of the Hulk, his life is so pathetic that he has to uh, invent another life for himself. Mm. And the, that amusing scene where Marky Post goes to his apartment, and the neighbor's like, Hey, Harold! <laughs> <laughs> and she's thinking, that's a prostitute. Um, one of the things about this episode that I absolutely hate is at the end, David changes because a bell is going on, and when the Hulk throws the bell out the out the tower, yeah, you see the, the wires. See the strings, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, wow, not even trying to hide that, are you? Okay, then. Um, the last two episodes of this season are kind of crap. The Quiet yeah. Room, meh. And Vendetta Road, which is... Even Meh. worse. Yeah. <laughs> Let's play like, Bonnie and Clyde and do it as a TV show. Yeah, and and, and it's again, this comes from a era where you could have this as a season ender and it be okay. Whereas today, you would have to have um, you would have to have like some big epic thing happen to lead into the next season. Yeah. Whereas now so, it was just another episode was the season finale, wasn't it? Um, by season three, shows firing in all cylinders, and I think this has some of the best episodes of the series in it. Yeah, I think this is the best overall season. You know, I'm going to agree with that, even though episode, season four has, like, my favorite episodes in oh, it. Oh, yeah, season four has my favorite episode. Oh, no, my favorite episode is in season three, but season um, four has some of my favorites as well. But overall, it was pretty, it was enjoyable every week, even with episodes like Jake and Babalow and Behind the Wheel in it. <laughs> but you know metamorphosis where he's with Mackenzie phillips and, and what i love yeah. the, the what gary graham's in this you know i was gonna say the same thing <laughs> very young gary graham matt sykes is in this oh. episode and i remember seeing that after watching um alienation and going oh so that's how they met <laughs> because here's the thing folks kenneth johnson will reuse actors all the time yeah normally ones he was at school with um Steel as a film is full of his people, including Charles Napier, mm. the guy that played George Francisco has a role in it. Oh. It's like, yeah. Right. So, uh, it's like the only reason to really watch the film besides Annabeth Gish. Uh, blind Rage is a very good one. Yeah, explores David being blind. So, yeah. and, oh, well, notable for one of the few times we get to see the Hulk face off against tanks. Yes, uh, there is an episode in this season that that happens that's much more comical. But uh, mm. <laughs> Brainchild... Okay, this is why this is one of my favorite episodes. I remember watching this when I was a kid. Uh, as do I. I vividly remember him being tied to that swing set and changing into the Hulk. And just just that memory just makes me smile. So I will always... Plus, I really like the character that... Um, the the girl that's in it, and yeah. The, the talking computer may be a bit much. Yeah, but you know, at at the heart of it is a is a girl that just wants her mom. Yeah, and I and I can buy into that. And again, something that really couldn't happen today. I'm sorry, you couldn't drive around with a 16 year old girl that's not your daughter. No. It's, yeah, but again, the series has kicked off with a, a good run of episodes before mm -hmm. we get to the next one, which is really fun. 
Cool Hand Hulk? Yep, that's the one. Charles Napier's in it. Mark Alemo's in it. The voice of the Hulk eventually. Yeah. uh, When I was a kid, this is the one that always seemed to get rerun. (laughs) I, um... I really like this one, too, because it puts David in a position that he would be put in. David on the back roads of America running afoul of, like, corrupt sheriffs and stuff like that. This makes perfect sense. And it's also a really cool situation to put in because he can escape. Yeah. I mean, let's face it. He can turn into the Hulk and run away and be fine. The rest of the people there is the problem. Hmm. And Charles Napier, who I love as an actor. I think Charles well, Napier is great. Always love as an actor. I mean... Actually, it's funny. One of my favorite roles, brother. One of my favorite roles of his was Duke on this animated series called The Critic, where he plays this Ted Turner-like character who's Jay Sherman's boss, and he has like, (laughs) on one hand, Jay, I agree with everything you you just said. On the other hand, shut up. (laughs) And and the weird. I'll send you a clip of the "We're the Bears That Sing" for Duke. Okay. Um, because it's it's classic. I, I really, it's really sad that you guys never got the critic over there. Because I think probably we did of... get the critic, but I think it was only on cable. I mean, I I know him only from, from his appearance in The Simpsons. Uh, but um, no, he plays a very believable. I mean, okay, let's face it. This guy's in here probably for a reason. Yeah. That doesn't mean he's not human. Yeah, it doesn't so, mean he's not a nice guy. Um, <laughs> and the corrupt warden and everything and yeah this is very much cool hand luke with the with the hulk in it but But done very well uh old home week continues with my favorite magician which other than having ray walston in it is a bit meh yeah it's uh my dad's got problems but he's in love with this woman and she's marrying somebody that she shouldn't marry blah 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 I hate to say that, but yeah, and the next two are blah as well. Aren't oh, the 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 rodeo one. Oh uh, God, yeah. I hate this episode. Is is very dull, and um, LQ Jones is in it, but that's probably the only notable thing about it. And uh, behind the wheel, David's working at a taxi cab company, and is notable only for the fact that he has to give Jack McGee a lift. That and the Hulk with the kid. Yes. That's a very sweet little scene because the mother's freaking out and the kid's okay and the Hulk's just like, bitch, what are you screaming about? <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> Suddenly the Hulk is uh, Samuel L. Jackson in the end of Pulp Fiction. <laughs> be cool, bitch, be cool! <laughs> <laughs> Tell that bitch to be cool! <laughs> yeah, it is. There's a bit where McGee gets back in the banner's cab and it's great. glasses on and puts the hat on and starts talking in a deeper voice. Again, David Banners is many things. He is not a good master of disguise, nope. nor is he a good liar. Nope. So. But it, it's a it's a nice little scene in an otherwise forgettable episode. Uh, this is my favorite episode of the season. Right. Uh, it's homecoming. It's up there for me. It's in my top three favorite episodes of this season. Flies in the face of something David said in the pilot. Me kind of. Go he does. He says in the pilot, "Mother always liked you to Elena Marks." If this, if this is what you're referring to, yes. That and is if what this, I'm it's established to. his mum died when he was what ten? No, he was a he was a little he was a teenager. Right. It is possible he grew up with Elena Marks. That is true. If you want to I try will... and no prize it, but for me. To get personal for a second, as somebody who has had 
problems with their father uh, that is later resolved. This one hits home. Right. Very close to home. Because, you know, I, it's really neat to see him with his sister. Yeah, played by and, um, Diana Mulder. Uh, in, a, in an extremely great performance, I thought. I, I really bought into it. But I loved the scenes with his dad, especially the Hulk and his father. Yeah. Where you see that he's scared, but at the same time, this is my son. Mm, and he doesn't judge him. Yeah. It, it just happens. So at the end, when he has to leave, he understands it. Even though they have a giant ranch that he could hide he out could on. hide on, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's- oh, great. I'm ne- thank you for pointing that out. And when I say thank you, I mean, don't, I don't thank you at all, because that's going to ruin some episodes for me. Sorry. Um, it is, it's a brilliant little character episode ruined by, well, not ruined, ruined, to quote Stewie Griffin. Um, not ruined. totally destroyed by having a, a danger bad guy subplot graph. Yeah. But it, it, it's it's also David's very smart. You know, he figures out how to solve the problem with the bugs by metamorphosis, yeah. which is apparently a word that Bill Bixby would event, would sometimes have problems with. Is it? If the outtakes I've seen have any, oh, right. or any indication. But it's also one of the better Hulk outs because it's very controlled. Yeah. You know, he has a nightmare. He changes. He smashes some stuff. But mostly it's it's not the Hulk tearing everything up. No, his, his sister calms him down, doesn't she? Yeah. And, you know, he runs off and there's like the, the kind of, you know, the thing with his father. But just at the same time, it's just... I've really felt for David Banner in this because yeah. they, they, they sucker you in because it's a Thanksgiving episode. Yeah, and it's, re- it's the closest he would come to doing a, well, what does he do at Christmas episode. Yeah. And uh, it's really lovely. It's really well performed. It's got a lovely musical score, this one. Mm-hmm. The da, 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 all of that's in it. And there's a lovely little stripped-down version of the theme. It's It's got a really good score. It really comes together, this one. It's a really good one. And the thing with his mother gets to me. Yeah, um, yeah. Just, just because it's, you see the anger. And you mentioned before that he had anger management issues or could have had you know some anger problems. This is where all of that comes from. Yeah. He couldn't save his mother. He couldn't save his wife. You know? Yeah, it does add a, a level of psychology to the character. You understand why he's how he is. It isn't just contrived that he will hulk out every two episodes. The guy does have a problem. It's something that, if done today, they might have played with. Yeah, well, there if would, they be would established more, it. be a lot more seeding of it if they'd done it today. Yeah. Like Married, for example, would probably take place over a number of episodes if they did mm-hmm. it today. He would meet up with her in one episode. They'd establish that she's got a problem, he's got a problem, whatever. You'd probably have a couple of episodes of him wandering around where they're communicating with each other. And then they'd have an episode where she gets worse and he goes back to her and they get married. Mm-hmm. So it would be told over like half a season, probably. couple kind of forgettable ones the snare or no, the, the world's snare's awesome you like the snare the i've snare. always <laughs> the most dangerous game hulk style our, it's our got a first fun... point of contention congratulations oh that's fine <laughs> um an excellent performance by bradford dillman uh his glee on his face when he sees that he's obviously done the, the you know the premise of the most dangerous game I yes think. i've read i read the story um 
So Dillman's hunting real people. He's Craven the Hunter. He's hunted everything on land and sea, and he's he could know, play Craven the Hunter. He actually, could. When he you... could at this point. And he was, he's very good in this. He's very good in um, Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Bradford Dillman's a good actor. Um, he takes David to his. They meet in an airport. Uh, he's got an own private island. He takes David to the private island ostensibly because the storm has meant that David's plane will not be landing tonight or will not be taking off. And tomorrow we'll bring him back to the airport or take him in his private plane or whatever to wherever he's going. David accepts the invitation reluctantly, it has to be said. And once though, he drugs David, equips him with some equipment, if that makes any sense, <laughs> and lets him loose on the private island, giving him a certain amount of time, and then he will hunt him. Of course... David's the Hulk. He witnesses David change and the just the utter glee on his face when he realizes that here is something that can really challenge him. It's brilliant. And then the rest of the episode is as a battle of wits between David and this guy who I don't know if he's given a name. Um, and it's it's fantastic because Dillman, it's a two-hander between Bixby and Dillman, despite the fact they never actually meet from that point on until the climax. And it's really well done, and the tension's milked brilliantly. It's wonderfully shot. Um, throughout the episode, he's got a communicator walkie-talkie thing, so Dillman's constantly teasing him or winding him up or riling him. It's a really good show. It's got a fantastic ending where he's got a cassette that he plays, and Dillman's saying, congratulations, if you're listening to this, you have succeeded and I'm dead. And David intelligently leaves that on the island yeah. and <laughs> drives off in the boat. Just going to leave that yeah. right there. At the end. <laughs> it's another one of those shows that, why could he not stay on that deserted island? He's got everything yeah. there he needs. He's got a house. He's got electricity. He could stay there at least for a couple of weeks. But he doesn't. But I think it's a really good one, the snow. I really enjoy that one. Counterpoint. <laughs> I saw it as a kid and really didn't like it. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> um, granted, I have not watched this one again for many, many years. So, as with everything in my life, if I don't like something six years ago, I may watch it today and love it. Uh, you certainly sell, sell me on it. Also, this one has a really weird... It's going to sound weird. Uh, we moved to Mountaintop, Pennsylvania when I was seven. And we had to stay in a hotel for a few days because the rental house wasn't ready. And this was on the TV at one point. Oh, this episode. Right. I remember watching it. And I think that's probably why I don't like it because I was kind of bored as a kid. Right. And that may have bled through. Now i got to watch it again. I know that's a hard thing. <sighs> it's not <laughs> like I, ha I don't have DVD box sets that Universal has milked money out of me on. Um, yeah, it's, 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 I think it's really the only downer on it considering the big emphasis they put on the fact that he sees him become the Hulk and he's fascinated by what he can hunt, the second Hulk out is therefore a big disappointment. Yeah. I was expecting more of a hunting the Hulk scene and we don't get that. But the cat and mouse between Dillman and Bixby is really well done. Can we agree that Babalao isn't a good episode? Oh, that's god-awful. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to go two for two on that. No, just... He's in New Orleans, she's kind of hot, superstitions, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, dull as dirt. Uh, Captive Night, which yep. is kind of kind of a, not a mediocre episode, if not for one, the Hulk versus a tank. Yes. At least a toy tank. A toy tank. And, and the, the scene with the Hulk is quite an extended one as well in this one. 
and him with the green mannequin yes. where the love theme comes up. He yeah. steps back, takes the shirt off, like, hey, look at what I got. Hey, hot mama. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, pretty standard David liked, caught up in circumstances beyond his control. I liked that David pretends he's in league with the criminals. That was good. See, that, that is something that I like about this because you really get... The side characters are just as good as Bixby in this one. Mm. Where every, you know, when, when Bix does play as the, you know, the bad guy, and the one guy's like, I knew it! And you see the betrayal on the face of the woman, mm. you know, it does make for a very good episode. I mean, it's not a bad episode like no. Baba uh by any stretch of the imagination. I just think it's kind of like one of the more standard ones. Yeah, yeah. It's notable for those two things. The whole cow is extended, and there's multicolored mannequins, and his reaction to the green one is hysterical. <laughs> And Bixby doesn't give anything away. No. He would have been an excellent poker player. No, he's uh, he, he plays it very close to the vest in this one, which mm. is one of the reasons why I like it. Yeah. Um, broken Image with the evil twin episode that's yeah. not an evil twin episode. Yeah, notable only for Banner and McGee coming face to face, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's just the the one thing I like about this episode is that they're face to face, and the guy, the 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 gangster henchman shows up. Boss, is this guy bothering you? And you see the doubt start creeping in on McGee's face. And then at the end, Bixby as the the gangster going, "No, there's a guy that looks like me," and just trying to explain that to the cops. Yeah. So. It's an enjoyable episode. Yeah. Not, not one of the best. but nope, Not awful, but not one of the best. However, the next one is <sighs> one of the best. Love this episode. Yeah, one of the best of the series run. Proof positive. Notable for not having Bill Bixby in it. Not at all. He's played by a stuntman at the very end. I mean, he's there in flashbacks. Mm. But he's not there... Uh, as like a character, it's again, it's all about one. It's 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 Jack McGee having a very attractive woman seemingly come on to him, because yeah. um, the the basically Carol Ferris is taking over the uh, yeah. <laughs> the airline, and she's uh, she's wanting to figure out what's up with Jack McGee, and the fact that we it it basically is a clip episode. Yeah. I mean, but they frame it in such a way that they make it a powerful character piece at the same time. Because mm, it's all from McGee's point of view. Exactly. And it's McGee's reason for hunting the creature and why McGee does what he does. And it's the underlying, the, the idea that this has cost him as much as it's cost Banner. It's destroyed his life, this obsession. It says in this episode he's lost the woman that he was living with because of it. It's mm-hmm. lost his reputation because of it. It's heavily implied that at one point he was a good reporter. And we've seen that in previous episodes, that he really shouldn't just be working for this rag, the National Register, but he's obviously hit up on hard times somewhere. And this obsession is costing him as much as it's costing Banner. I I just think it's it shows what a great actor Jack Colvin is. Mm. Um, Can carry the show on his own when he needs yeah, it. Yeah, he... The thing about the, 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 I almost said the chaser, but that's like, um, (laughs) that sounds like he's like a mixed drink or something. Um, (laughs) McGee is the bad guy, but he's not 
evil. He's the antagonist. He's the very definition of the term antagonist. And the fact that they took so much time to flesh him out as a character is, I think, why he is fondly remembered. Because mm. if he was just a two-dimensional character in town to find the Hulk, it would have been boring. But yeah. the fact that they decided to constantly shade him. Now, let me ask you this. Um, even though the psychic comes a month later, is this the episode that uh, Bill Bixby had to leave because of the death of his son? No, this is the episode where he was going through his divorce. Okay, okay. The, the death of his son was in 1980, later than this. So it was in the fourth okay. season. Okay. I was just curious about that, of why he wasn't in the episodes. So. The death of his son was after they'd got divorced. This was the divorce. Which is kind of weird, because like... Uh, well, not like the Six Million Dollar Man, but like uh, Lee Majors, he would eventually go on to star with his ex-wife Yeah, in a rather poignant episode. Mm. Um, Sideshow, meh. Meh. Uh, long Run Home, double meh. <laughs> uh, Fallen Angels. Um, <laughs> notable because it stars the aunt of Donovan Morgan Grant. Does it? As the main girl. Excellent. That's, That's a his aunt. That's a claim to fame, isn't it? Yeah. And when he told me that, I was like, you are now more awesome to me yeah. for, for no reasons that are yours. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty damn good, that. It's it's basically Oliver with the Hulk. I mean, yeah. uh, the lottery. <laughs> uh, nah. It's fun, at least. At the very least, it's fun. Um, kind of silly, though. He buys the lot winning lottery ticket but he can't go himself so a con man helps him out who makes the best clam um linguine with clam sauce ever apparently <laughs> um isn't it sad that that's what i remember from this episode uh, the linguine with clam sauce it's not sad now uh, the, the guy, psychic the psychic my personal favorite episode of the series run you uh, did a very excellent commentary of this thank you very much it is um, i and hey kids uh it's bixby's best performance in the series although the first comes close um the fact that his ex-wife is in it gives it a certain poignancy i can never say that word if you listen to my show you know that um and the fact that she did die not long after this gives it an element that maybe it didn't have on first screen but i just think this one is awesome in you know what makes this episode for me well when the boy dies yeah and David just breaks down and cries. Yep. Bixby just sells that moment. Um, Bixby sells the entire episode. He yeah, that the, is true. <laughs> it's, it's interesting that they juxtapose the character his wife, ex-wife, is playing as essentially being the flip side of David. She's running from her problem. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the episode, he gets her to go back and address her problem, something that he himself never does. But it is a David Banner at the end of his tether. We finally see two and a half, three years of this unbearable problem coming down on him with the weight of, does he now have this boy's death on his conscience? And, and not only that, he tries to kill himself. Yeah, and it culminates in a fantastic scene where he leaves his suicide note and says, I've had it beyond hope, beyond cure. I've had enough, David. And he's, he's on the, the, the ledge. He's going to jump and kill himself. 
he cannot go through with this anymore. And it's one of those things that they would, either by design or by luck, I don't know, they would never address this in quite the same way again. This is the culmination of everything since the pilot of Banner's life being completely destroyed by what's happened to him, by him not knowing what happens to him when the Hulk takes over, the lingering doubt in his head that is the Hulk potentially a killer, despite the fact he knows in his mind he won't kill. So ostensibly the creature won't kill, but he's not in control when he's the creature. And all of this comes to that beautiful scene that you've just mentioned where Bixby just hangs it all out to dry. He is raw in that scene. He's crying, there's snot everywhere. He is literally at the end of his road. And the only thing he can do from this point is go up. It's a beautiful episode, beautifully performed. Bixby's best performance in the show. It encapsulates everything that made Banner a three-dimensional, well-rounded character, far more than other characters in shows of this era. Uh, it's it's just beautiful. It's an excellent episode. Brilliantly performed, brilliantly written by Karen Harris and Jill Sherman. Uh-huh. Gorgeous episode. What I also really liked is that McGee figures out that the Hulk's innocent. Yeah. And reports it. Because, at heart, he wants the truth. Mm. And I think to McGee's mind... If the Hulk did it, fine. You know, I think he's a killer anyways. But he didn't do this. Yeah. And he tra- and he takes the effort to track down what actually happened. And I agree with you. Probably from a writing standpoint, you can't get better than this. Uh, from a performance standpoint on the part of Bixby, I have to agree with you. There's only one other moment in the series that has this level of sadness to it. And that ends in just... I'll get to that in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. I know the scene you, you go into. It's, it's an awesome episode. It's miserable as hell in places. It's yes. hard to get through in play. Angela's watched this one with me and said, God, this is miserable. But uh, it is the culmination of three years of... This guy's life is miserable. Mm-hmm. As he says to Jack McGee in two episodes' time, mine is not a happy life, Mr. McGee. And it's no more apparent than in this one. Once again, we have a very good episode followed by... Meh. Okay. <laughs> this aired on February 29th, 1980. I turned four. Happy birthday. <laughs> um, this is the one I watched in Metropolis, by the way. it's The only reason I like this episode is because I think the woman is funny. And I think her interactions with David and David just like, I don't want to be with you and looking at the FBI guy and I don't want to be with you. I just want out of this situation. And this is a very important episode though, because it's where the FBI shreds its file on David Banner. Mm. That's significant. Yeah. That's extremely significant as a matter of fact. Yeah, but but it barely barely mentioned again, unfortunately. Yeah, well, it's kind of a lackluster episode. Death Mask, love this episode. Yeah, this is the love one love this episode. That I was talking about earlier on. There is a number of US TV shows. I've mentioned to you before when we've we've talked about stuff like this. Uh, over here, US TV shows were generally the family hour. There was a couple that heard after the Ooh. nine o'clock watershed. Like the equalizer was never shown before nine o'clock. 
but stuff like the A-Team and Knight Rider were always shown at 5.30 in the evening, so it was the Hulk. Magnum P.I. had an 8 o'clock slot that was considered a more family-friendly than, say, the Equalizer or Hill Street Blues, but was still always heard later. It was never shown at 5. A couple of those shows... Magnum being one of them, Erwolf being another. There were a couple of episodes that were not deemed suitable for those time slots and were shown at 11 o'clock at night. This episode of The Hulk was shown on first run on ITV and was shown for the very first time 10 years later in 1990 at 11.30 at night. It's a pretty harsh episode. Yeah. Um, You have basically a serial killer on this college campus and leading up to the first Hulk out you know you have a lot of suspense but the duel at the end between Gerald McCraney and Bill Bixby Mm. in that hot interrogation room just makes this episode where you see him break down yeah Gerald McCraney's character just com- and and you see why he does what he does yeah McCraney's best guest star performance definitely without a doubt just you know just it's the most solid of, of, of his guest appearances. Because essentially he carries this episode. This mm-hmm. is very much an episode where Bixby takes a back seat to the guest star. It's not that Bixby's not good in it, he is, but he knows that this is a showcase performance for the guest star and he lets him have the, the spotlight. And McCraney rises to the challenge. Another episode where a girl too young for David wants him, but there's also another hot girl that really likes him, so yay. Yay. But she's the smart one, so he's the one. She's the one that David's interested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a common thread that I never noticed until this morning. <laughs> well, that's and why we like chatting to each other, that's isn't it? Why I feel pretty thick right now. Oh, Equinox, excellent episode. Yeah, I like Equinox quite a bit. One, because you see the Hulk right there at the beginning. Three Hulk outs in this episode. Um, it's a good cat and mouse game yep. between uh, McGee and Banner. Yep. But also. The woman in this yeah, is, is a bitch. She pretty much almost gets what she deserves. Yes, pretty much. And I hate to say that because it sounds like uh, just women just get with it. No, 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 no. She's she's a horrible human being. Yeah. And David um, will not give in to her. It's brilliant. It's so great. All of her life, you get the impression she's she's got what she's wanted because she's rich. And David just doesn't care. He will. What I like. Go on, sorry. I'm so, no, no, you go ahead. I was just going to say that all the way through the episode, the relationship between those two is just as good because he treats her with burly, veiled contempt. Yeah. Well, what I, what I like most about it is that for him, he's got nothing to lose. Yeah, he doesn't care, does he? There is nothing about this girl's life that impacts him in any significant way, whereas everybody else who wants to kill her you know, has something in it for them. He's the uh, purely because he's been employed to organize her dead father's book collection or something. Something like that. Yeah. And then he's out of there and she had a thing for him because, well, it's a woman in an episode of the Incredible Hulk. So yeah. it, it kind of had to happen. <laughs> but because um, he's not interested, she can't, she doesn't understand it. So she wants it because she can't have it. Exactly. And that's really what carries this. I mean, the whole thing with the Equinox, the, 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 the confrontation between Banner and McGee is great, but I think what carries this episode is, is her arc as going... You know, at the end, she realizes, somebody tried to kill me because I'm a horrible person. Yeah. <laughs> Although I, I think the scene with McGee and Banner is good. 
Oh, it's great. Where it's he, just... He's wearing a mask so he doesn't know his face, and he basically says, mine is not a happy life. Why yeah, he... Why do you continue to hound me? And the the whole thing where he comes in and David's like, in, the lamp is in the way. I mean, it's just... It's just sh- Cinematography-wise, this is a great episode. Yeah, DP uh, John McPherson did wonderful work on the Hulk. He really did. I'm going to make an admission now because it's been so long since I've seen season three. I do not remember nine hours at all. I think I vaguely remember it, but the fact that I vaguely remember it means it can't be up to much. Yeah. Uh, on the line... Stock footage central. You know, the, 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 the girl in this is actually really cute. <laughs> <laughs> and that's pretty much it. Yeah, yeah. There, 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 there's fires. Uh, they think it's David. It's not David. It's the guy that's supposedly the hero. The end. Yeah, pretty much. Season over again. Just a really lousy way to end a season. Yeah, or a series. I yeah. guess I should say. For Equinox you. or the Psychic would have been a much better season ender. But oh, definitely the Psychic would have been the best way to end it. Mm. Um, just oh my god, that would have been such a better. Oh, why'd you have to say that? Now I'm gonna, <laughs> now I'm gonna be thinking about that. Um, season four. Some of the best episodes of the show's run. Some of the worst episodes. Yeah, of the show's there's run. really no in between here, is there? No. Nope. It um starts off with Prometheus. Uh, it's still probably one of the best, certainly most cinematic-looking two-parters they ever did. Uh, though. People of a younger generation think this one's funny because he changes because of bees. Yeah. Uh, well, that is quite comical. It, it, no, because I was uh, no when I one of the guys that, that used to work for me at the at the other office depot I worked for was about you know like 22, 21, 22 years old. He's like, yeah, my girlfriend and I watch clips of the Hulk on YouTube. He changed because of bees, and that's stupid. Yeah, but, and I'm like, there, there's context to yeah, that. You realize this, fair. right? <laughs> I mean, it's silly, but the rest of the episode is quite awesome. Especially the beginning of the second part. Let's unleash some bees on you and see what happens, should we? Because as cool as it is that David gets caught in between, Mm. which leads to some wonkiness when you're watching it, because that one guy does not look like Bill Bixby. Um, He just is a little bigger than Bix and not as big as Lou. Uh, I think assembling the team in the second part is probably my favorite part of this episode. Mm. And one of your uh, favorite people, the evil, well, not the evil, but the misguided $7 million man is in this episode. Yes, yes. Monty Markham shows up. Just delivering his lines for all they're worth. I love him. I love him. Monty Markham can chew scenery with the best of Yeah. And he does it in the best Charlton Heston tradition. It's all gritted teeth and squirt jaw. He's marvelous, Monty Markham. But, you know, as much as I like seeing Banner go through his thing and, and Laurie Prang uh, makes her second appearance, um, I almost made a joke that at the end, the Hulk runs into the Bizarro Hulk and she's cured of her blindness, but that would be an esoteric joke, so I'm not going to make it. I the really Man think... The Steel that... reference! <laughs> and the first appearance of Bizarro yep. Superboy back in the 60s. Because um, <laughs> I'm a dork. But a look- I really oh. think it's the secondary characters that carry the second part of this episode yeah. and really make it as good as it is because... Banner doesn't really do a lot in the second half. Not really, and I like seeing McGee and McGee when he goes, "Shut up <laughs> <laughs> and listen." 
Like, yeah. okay, I crossed the line with what I just said, so I'm going to backpedal a little bit on that. <laughs> I think the, the other notable thing about this beginning of the fourth season, 70s fashions disappeared overnight. Yes, they did. Oh my god, you're right. No wide lapels, no bell-bottoms, just gone. Which makes the fourth season look slightly less dated than the rest of the series. Overnight, because my but... god, some of the stuff in the first... Yeah. I mean, the car he drives in the pilot. Mm. And the, dates the, the thingy or suit that he's wearing in the pilot. The leisure yeah. suit. <laughs> but, um... No, it's just, they think the Hulk is an alien... You know, he has to escape, he gets out, there's the, the, the swelling of the music when he's cured. Um, though, frankly, he is as far away from the rock at that moment <laughs> as he was in the first part. But whatevs. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, um, do you get the sense that this woman is really well off? This uh, this piano prodigy because she's living out in the middle of nowhere with a really nice piano and stuff. Yeah, it's Laurie. I think it's the same character. She just forgot who she is. <laughs> now she's blind, and he has to help her come to terms with that. Yeah. Oh, you can see the old man shows up. I've been trying to tell her that for years. <laughs> now go fight a bear. Um, uh, once again, we have a, a, a brilliant two-part movie episode, and it's followed by Freefall. It's, again, really, not awful. Yeah, it's kind of a forgettable one, though. Yeah. I mean, you could remove this from the, the mythology, and nothing would be lost. No. The Hulk out from without of the plane with no parachute could have been better. Yes, and would have played out nicely later on mm. um, in one of the movies, yes. as a matter of fact. Oh, God, this one, Dark Side. Oh, one of the best ones of the showroom, by far. <sighs> David attempts to cure himself of being the Hulk with drugs. The drugs mm -hmm. backfire and make him more bestial when he's Banner, which has the, the effect of making the Hulk somebody who seems well-prepared to kill. It has, what we alluded to earlier, the second appearance of the line, Don't Make Me Angry. The fact that David says it while he's being beaten up and laughing, and laughing because he wants them to make him angry is is brilliantly delivered by Bixby. The thing about this episode that gets to me is, you know, when I was younger, especially, and even as an adult, uh, the Hulk is a scary thing. Uh, it's played heroically throughout the course of the series, but when you really think about the Hulk and uh, he's this uncontrollable, strong, unkillable monster... You know, that's kind of creepy. But the thing that you can accept with it is that you know that David Banner doesn't want this. So when you see him wanting it and see him, like, going after an 18-year-old girl, essentially. Mm, yeah. Um, who has a crush on him that he's like, you know, just, just like when he when he goes to Dark David, for lack of a better term, <laughs> and he's calling her into the, you know, like, talking to her in the kitchen... And just, like, later in the episode, it's just like, oh, God. And, and you know, there's a the whole tortured thing with the family where the dad, who was from the Antioch Horror, yeah. uh, comes back. Um, you know, he's... Yeah, they're looking again. Basically, you know, a, a, like a merchant sailor who is gone all the time. So he has troubles with his family, which is why she is attracted to David, because she's got daddy issues. Um, you know, you have all of that going on. And then at the end, he carjacks somebody? Yep. 
Um, the Steals scene, the though, Pontiac Trans Am. And has to, tra- you know, and cures himself. It's just, it's a really dramatic episode. The only thing that hinders this episode is David versus the caveman. <laughs> to show that he's going from his more savage side to his human side. I think that was kind of silly. Mm. And but it, and it, not it, having a wrap up at the end. Yeah, yeah, just he's gone. Oh, okay. Well, some people are just like that. Oh, well, okay. Right. I love you, daddy. <laughs> the end. But still, probably one of the better performances by Bixby. Yeah. Just cuz he gets to to flex his muscles and the secretary that he calls in sick with wants to do him. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, fair enough. <laughs> well, she's the one that calls him to the nightclub. Yeah, she is. So, I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, deep shock. Nah. Yeah, it's, it's again, good to, to shake up the, the formula by having the Hulk out near the beginning. And have the, I'm psychic because I got electrocuted. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but the Guys, relationship with the union lead is well handled. Yeah, I mean it's it's it, it's got a good plot to it. It's not it's it's like when I said what I was describing before. It's one of the middle of the road episodes. Yeah, and it's not, notable because in the middle of the show, David leaves, mm-hmm. the, and then comes back. Then he has to come back, yeah, and sneak back in, even though McGee's there. It's very dramatic, actually. Yeah. Now that I think about it, uh, bring me the head of the Hulk. I love this episode. I think this is like, again. This is ruined only by the brevity of the Hulk scene at the end. Mm-hmm. That should have been much longer. But the the thing I like about this this episode one is because you have a good a good villain for the piece, who's very similar to the guy from the snare, except yeah. more organized. I guess you could say. Yeah, um, the guy in the snare comes across him by accident. The guy in this, you get the impression. That again, if this was made today, this would be a season-long arc of mm-hmm. the guy pursuing him and making notes of where he's been seen, and he'd have one of those big boards on the wall with pins in showing where in the country the Hulk had been spotted. And you get the impression that this guy's been doing this for at least a year. And this is the culmination of his studies. He also kind of looks like the guy that owns the comic shop I go to right now. Which, um... <laughs> I walk in every week and go, why, why do you want the Hulk? Uh, Sandy McPeak returns, who yes. is the dad in uh, A Child in Need, as the good-natured mercenary. Yeah, the one that Banner befriends. It's like, you know, I like you. I hope I don't have to garrot you in the middle of the night. <laughs> what also elevates this episode outside of the tension is that the female scientist, there's a lot going on with her, too that you know you only get it because it's a 45 you know 48 minute episode but to me it's just like she is there because she is desperate so she's willing to believe anything to get what she needs uh, yeah so. she was played by Jane Merrow who was a, a British actress who, who tootled off to make her fortune in the US and promptly went on to be guest star in loads of American shows at this time she's in Magnum and other stuff like that most of the time, she didn't drop her plummy English accent either. Wow, she didn't. She was in MacGyver in '86 and didn't work again in the U.S. till Lovejoy in 1993. And Lovejoy's British. Oh well, there you go. <laughs> Maybe she came back home then. Maybe it didn't work out. For Had a kid. Yeah, probably. Decided to to get back into the acting thing. She's very attractive still. Yeah. 
Um, but uh, oh wow, she she's kind of hot for being like over 60 almost uh, well, 70 she, years old because she stripped down to her underwear in an episode of UFO and that was in 1969 <laughs> so she must be getting on a bit dun, dun, dun. <laughs> sorry now the theme to UFO is running through my head yep. uh, UFO was brilliant my favourite Jerry Anderson show UFO um, Fastlane nah. nah yeah that's one of the lower end <laughs> Here's one that sh- that should be like middle of the road, but I still love just because of the atmosphere. Goodbye, Eddie King. Yeah, a brilliant little film noir episode, Private Detective. Essentially, David's a, a subsidiary part in this one. And what's really great is at one point he's being questioned and you can't hear what he's saying because of the narration, but you can still see that he's a horrible, horrible liar. <laughs> Uh, yeah, directed by Jack Colvin. Very, very mm-hmm. well directed by Jack Colvin. But it had really good chapter breaks. Mm. Um, I mean, it's it's a smart episode. A lot smarter than I think most people would really give it credit for. Yeah, it's a really good one. Uh, and, of course, the ditzy uh, girl in the bikini really wants David. Of course. Uh, King of the Beach. An average episode notable for Lou Ferrigno playing somebody other than the Hulk. I was about to say the exact same thing. Yeah. Um, it's pretty pretty mediocre plot-wise, but it's interesting to see Bix and Lou Ferrigno working together mm. and talking to each other and acting together. Uh, I also like how they try to make the Hulk look bigger in the split screen. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Um, not the best Hulk outs, but not the worst. I, I, I think the the gag at the end where the Hulk flexes for everybody was kind of funny. Yeah. But, uh, but I think really that the, 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 the hallmark of this episode is that you get to see Lou out of the makeup and acting. Yeah. So, and it's the fourth season, so it's time for that. Yeah. And he did a good job. Um, wax museum. It's got some nice camera angles, some interesting, horrific moments without actually being a horror as, uh, the, the lead woman, is once again being tortured by a relative, which seemed to be a standard recurring theme in the Hulk. Tortured um, by the uncle from 16 Candles. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> ah, Lois, we got an owl in here. Sorry. <laughs> I'm just remembering John Hughes films from the 80s. Uh, East Winds, another nah. Jack Colvin-directed episode. Not as good as Goodbye, Eddie King. Nah. Bovet. <sighs> yes. The first, um, my favorite episodes, yeah. uh, my favorite episode, cause it's one story. There is so much to this episode that I did not know until recently. There are so many Frankenstein references in this. Oh, right. So many Frankenstein references. I have a list that I, uh, that I start cause I started taking notes cause eventually I'm going to do a commentary for this one. Oh, good. Um, over over at Views from the Long Box, which I hesitate to mention because Scott was talking about uh, me dropping plugs for my other shows. Um, <laughs> the town of Viseria, which this uh, this story takes place in, is a reference to a Frankenstein movie. Right. Uh, the Doctor Clive and Del Fry are also uh, references to other Frankenstein, the actors that have played Frankenstein 
and Dr. Frankenstein. It's it's pretty um for me on a total visceral level. For me it is the Hulk fighting the evil Hulk. Yeah. You never had a supervillain in this series up until this point. And I would argue that he's that Fry's creature is a supervillain. It starts very much like a horror, a 50s horror film with a dark and stormy night, a spooky house, castle. A couple kids go there, somebody dies. Cut to a year later when David Banner rolls into town because he has heard of another Hulk-like creature. Now, in my head, if this was done today, he would have heard about it on, like, a really snarky show on the History Channel hmm. about, like, you know, like, urban legends of the American Midwest. What about another creature? Uh, and that's what would attract it to him. I don't know how he found out about this. I guess he was just doing research into Dr. Clive. Comes into town... Uh, gets the stink eye from everybody but Elizabeth Collins. Elizabeth is usually the name of the woman that is in love with Dr. Frankenstein. Right. Uh, comes across Del Fry, who is a handyman, uh, who after a, a really good Hulk out, I think. Yeah. I, I really like the first Hulk out. It's the only Realized, Hulk out of part one, isn't it? Uh, it's the oh. only David Banner Hulk out. Um, have to be specific in that. Uh <laughs> And then Del Fry wants to help him, and it turns out, which they ruin in the, you know, this time on The Incredible Hulk, um, they ruin it by having Del goes, I used to be just like you, whereas to me, you keep that shit secret. Yeah. And you reveal it just at the right point, because they play it all through the beginning of the episode, that Clive was the creature, he died, so that's why the creature disappeared. No, he was cured. Um, Dell pulls out like 13 ways David could have cured himself in like five minutes. <laughs> it's like, uh, those books aren't missing. Well, no, I've got more of that powder. Uh, get this. I'm serious. It just, it pisses me off every day. Every time I watch it, I go, Hey, you got the cure back there, Dell? You know, you got like two needles ready to go for me. Jackass. Um, made all the better by the seeking suspicion that not all is right with Del Fry, and this is what pisses me off about the sci-fi channel version of this. That whole little bit where he's talking about, where he's reading uh, Clive's journal, and Clive's like, I'm worried because of Del's nature that maybe something, that the creature is more dangerous, and he looks over, and Del waves. That's cut out of the sci-fi channel version. Right, so the syndicated so you- print edits that. Uh, well, that particular syndicated print right. edits that. Um, and then one of my favorite parts is, oh, by the way, could you irradiate me? Because uh, I've got arthritis and it hurts mighty fierce. Uh, no, I'm not going to do that. And then Dell loses it, becomes the other creature, played by Dick Durock, and we set up the next episode where we find out how just how evil he is and the big fight. But as an adult, that is not my favorite part of the episode. This episode, by the way, was a holy grail for me. Because mm. I had never seen the first part when I was a kid. I got sick that night. I remember throwing up in my bed. Uh, and I remember only vaguely watching the second part on a 12-inch black and white screen when I was five. So my memories of these episodes 
not all that sharp. So in 91, when they were showing it on Channel 11, it was just like that moment. It's like, I get to see it now. And I remember I got to see the first part a year before that when Channel 11 just happened to show it on Saturday morning for no reason. The next Saturday morning, they weren't showing the Hulk anymore. (laughs) So they showed part one, but not part two. Yeah, really later, something else was in the time slot. So when I finally got to that second part to see the fight that I'd wanted to see, it was like, not only was I waiting 10 years to see this, but I had to wait another year to see the whole thing. So it's just like, damn you. (laughs) As an adult, the moment that sells this and makes it my favorite episode, and it's actually, I don't know if it's a mistake, from what I understand, it's a mistake in the editing. David and Elizabeth get Delphi back to the lab to cure him Mm. and to cure David. But they have to take care of Delph first because he's the danger. Because he decided to go to a place that is populated entirely by Burt Reynolds lookalikes, complete with a Dom DeLuise sidekick. Yeah. By the way, that fat guy is still alive. I don't know how it's possible, (laughs) but he's still alive. Because I figured he'd drop dead of a heart attack like mid-80s. But no. Um... Dell changes again and I really like this this is something that I put into the show the 70s concept of being strong is the muscle man yeah when Dell was younger it would have just been being bigger than everybody else so I like the fact that David's creature is like heavily muscled but Dell's creature is just really really freaking tall and bigger than everybody else Mm. not overly muscled but still incredibly strong. Um, the creature, Dell's creature, sees the vial, the last, the, the the last hope of him getting cured. This is it. It's right there across the room. Yep. And he could have taken it earlier and didn't. For the greater good, yep. as David Banner is a hero. The creature takes it, throws it at him, and his eyes go white. Yep. And there's like this odd hum and he's crying and then he opens his eyes again they're white and you hear the change yeah if you listen to the score to this episode there's music behind what David you know the thing hitting the wall Mm. I'm glad they took it out because it creates yeah, a better... It, it plays better in silence, doesn't it? Because it's you do get the impression that the contact lenses were in so that they could do the reveal. And it, it's not you're not supposed to spot that the contact lenses are already in, but it really does play into the scene better. Well, I was doing a little research, and apparently they had two different shots to show the white eyes, mm. and they used them both. just in a mistake in editing. Right. So, which which you can kind of see, because the first one's a big ding, yeah. and the second one's a big ding, but it's just that creepy silence yeah. of he's changing, he's fighting it, but then he just gives in to the anger. Mm. He's mad, but when the creature, when the Hulk finally shows up, He's not overly angry. In fact, he seems more confused and childlike. Like, what the heck am I looking at? Yeah. And then there comes the moment where he's like, nah, screw this. (laughs) (laughs) 
this fight is on. And the fight's kind of lackluster, but it was early 80s television, so what do you really want from it? Yeah. I mean, today it would be an epic CGI battle through the streets of Harlem. Um, but for my money, because he comes so close and it just doesn't work, this is like one of the sadder episodes. Yeah. Even though the the it's it's a you know it's a gimmick hey there's an evil hulk and i've seen and i remember things in tv guide over here going something's evil at the clive house and i've seen images of it online and they really sold this as an event yeah which is why i was so excited as a kid but i love these episodes mm. they are they're an exceptional two but they, they didn't do a bad two-parter it seemed like in this show, Never. when they were doing a two-part episode, they seemed to pull out all the stops. Even budgetarily, they seemed to increase the budget. Now, they may not have done, but it seemed like they did. Prometheus felt like a big episode. This has another creature in it, so you've got the makeup time and special effects time for that. And it's, it, it is a really good episode. It is very powerful at the end, where he has the cure in his hand and it gets destroyed before his eyes. And it is one of those moments where you really do feel for him. You really feel sorry for him. It's it's really funny that that guy went on to play Swamp Thing. Yeah. That makes me laugh. For some <laughs> I have no idea. Um, I don't. I, did you like the other Hulk? I mean, um, I liked it more as a child than I did as an adult. I do think as an adult, he, all that comes across as a bit silly, but you're willing to go with it because of David and David's performance and Bill Bixby's performance in the episode and the the idea that he, he's actually found what he's looking for. He's got the cure. Um, I, I don't think Dick Durock did a fantastic job as the other Hulk, I have to be honest, but it is the only time we do get that kind of comic booky Hulk versus Hulk thing. And so for that, it scores. Um, Personally, I think Prometheus is better than this in terms of the story that it's telling and how well it's executed. But it is still an exceptionally good episode. It's still exceptionally well performed. Uh, particularly the ending, it's it's let down. Like you say, the ending is late 80, early 80s television. I would have expected a bigger fight, but meh. But it's hurt by not having a wrap-up. Yeah. Again, he just, he yeah, leaves David, David and... just goes. She tells McGee to leave him alone. McGee says, I'm not going to leave him alone. So, wah. <laughs> <laughs> nah, 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 nah. Um, surprisingly, the episode after this isn't as bad as it could be. No, um, no, it's, it's an enjoyable enough episode. Another Denny Miller. Um, Denny Miller guest starring interview with the Hulk. Uh, possibly the last good, really good episode they did. Obviously, oh no, half Nelson, sir. I argue with you. Is no, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I was gonna say. Now let's <laughs> get carried away. Uh, it's obviously a budget cruncher. Interview with the Hulk. It only has one Hulk out. It takes place almost primarily in one room with two actors going at it, and it's all shot on the back lot. But it's exceptionally well done. As Banner tells his story from beginning to an end to a reporter who's stolen one of McGee's leads. Mm-hmm. And it's a really good episode. Um, Half Nelson with uh, midgets. Um, oh, God, this was terrible. Uh, Danny? Nah. 
Yeah, meh. Patterns, again, <laughs> meh. <laughs> the only thing I will say about Into the Hulk, it should have been the penultimate episode. That episode should have led into a two-hour series finale. I can see that. Yeah. And, and I kind of like it because the, the, the interview itself is, is very well done. Yeah, because again, so. they're not talking about Banner, they're talking about the supporting actor. Mm-hmm. But it, it's really well done. You don't even notice there's only one Hulk out. Okay. Um, season, season five. five. <laughs> oh, I, think, I think we can. I think we can go through this pretty quick. Yeah. Phenom. Yeah. Uh, two godmothers. Penny yeah. Pays is in it. Yeah, that's true. Uh, veteran, which I don't even remember. Uh, this is the only season I don't have on DVD. It's the only that, season I've not watched multiple times. Yeah, I, I think I've seen all of these once. And that's it. So I don't really remember a whole lot of them. I've only seen a lot of these once as well. Um, Sanctuary is notable for having Diana Muldauer back, but not playing David's sister. Mm -hmm. Uh, Triangle has Charles Napier making a second appearance. Yeah, and David falling for somebody who isn't as bright as he is. Which Uh, might work. Slaves. Um, Not an awful one. And um, Faye Grant's in it. Yeah, d- top of the mediocre pile. Yeah. Um, and a minor problem. A fine mid-third season episode, a terrible series ender. True. I will agree with that. Um, He's not even in it. It's just... Well, they were having budget problems. Uh, CBS wanted CBS wanted to do one of several things. One, they wanted to go down to one Hulk out, which is like, duh, you can't do that. Everyone wants the two. They know they know when it hits the twenty-two minute and the uh, fifty-minute mark, you're going to be seeing a creature. Uh, another idea they had, which I was very amused at, is that they wanted to have like a sidekick in a Winnebago. Oh yeah, I've heard this one as well. Follow him around. Him, would they have called him Rick Jones? <laughs> and, if they were smart, they would have. Uh, I would have liked to have seen them buying the Winnebago from Mentor and uh, Billy Batson from the uh, the Shazam series. Um, and that's why the, the fifth season is so truncated. Uh, you know, they, they showed five new episodes in the early part of the season and then only two new episodes in May. And it filled in from there with uh, reruns. Right. The um, um, the Tomorrow's Book Age of TV Heroes goes into some detail on the cancellation. Do you have this book? No, I, I really need to get it. Right. There's a, an in-depth interview with Kenneth Johnson in it where he talks about the cancellation. Um, it wasn't doing bad in the ratings. It wasn't cancelled for rating reasons. Uh, they got a new head of network, CBS, called Harvey Shepard. And he looked at how much the Hulk cost. And he looked at how much Mark and Mindy was costing. And he said, we can have three Mark and Mindy's, which is a top ten show for the price of this one Hulk show, and cancel the show. Purely a monetarily decision. Uh, Ken Johnson arranged a meeting with him. They went out for dinner. Where Ken Johnson said, look, we're not going to argue with you about the cancellation. Five years, decent run. We're happy with that. You've got seven episodes in the can. Give us a 12-episode order for a half-a-season order. Yeah, that's, that makes... Yeah, uh, I'm just looking at Angela's tortoise, sorry. And um, I will do a two-hour opening episode where we establish that David's sister, who we met in Homecoming, has a rare blood disease, and David has to give her a blood transfusion to save her life, and this will make her a She-Hulk. And the only way you can cure her of this is cure her or kill her. 
Um, but he's not going to. He said he's the direct quote is, "I'm not going to give you the bra popping She-Hulk because I felt that was just too silly for words." But I will give you a woman who is crazy and really dangerous that our hero has to either kill or save, and it'll be a smash way to open the season. And for the rest of the season, you trail this as being the last season of the Incredible Hulk. You play out the other episodes. We'll make one more one-hour episode to meet our quota, and then I will do a two-hour series finale where Banner is caught and put on trial for the death of Elena Marks. And Harvey, whatever I said his name was, said, no, I don't think so. And the show was dead. And under most boneheaded decisions ever made by a network executive, that must surely come in the top five. I mean, that... Uh, that would have that would they could have sold that for all it's worth. Yeah, how much? I mean, there's seven episodes there that weren't particularly good, but you bill it as three weeks until McGee catches Bayonet, two weeks until McGee comes face to face, one week until Banner is put on trial, and you milk that throughout the the thirteen or twelve weeks or whatever, and we would have got a series finale. The show would have ended, and I personally think it would have been much stronger if it had ended in 1982 than what we got at the end of the 80s. Well, Which is yeah, I'll, I'll definitely agree with that. So uh, I, don't want, I don't want you to take the well as me no, about no, no. To, to argue the point. Because I feel, I, but I, because, oh, sorry, go on. Because I think you're absolutely right. Um, the only thing I will say, in the five years that the show ran, they never did the Hulk splits off from Banner idea. Why? Why did they never do that? Because you've got two actors, so there's the, split screening. The only, the only thing I can think of on that is it was too sci-fi for Johnson. But Bat's dilemma would have been magnificent. I, it, I, it would have ended with him having to take the Hulk back. Essentially, you're only remaking the enemy within. But they could have ex- done it well. I agree. It could have been a great episode. I can just see Johnson going, "No, that's too comic booky." Uh, of having him split off. I agree. It would have been. It would have. It would have been a great idea. Um, but I think that. Um, I just. I, I could just see Johnson looking at that idea and going, "You know, the best I'm going to give you is him fighting another creature." And we're only going to have like that fight happen for three minutes. And maybe to have Ferrigno in the episode all the way through in makeup. Yeah, cost prohibitive because by the fourth season as we've mentioned in, in going through it there were an awful lot more episodes shot on the back lot yeah and just uh, I mean I'm really sad that it ended the way it did and even kind of sadder with the, the reunion films which we're going to touch on in just a minute uh, but still I think pound for pound the series itself holds up extremely well of having more good episodes than bad and even having more middle of the road episodes than terrible mm. uh, one of the things that I know you wanted to touch on and I totally agree with this is one of the hallmarks of this show is the music yeah Joe Harnell's musical score is not what you would expect from this era it isn't a Starsky and Hutch bow, chicka, bow, chicka, bow, chicka, bow, chicka, score but it's not the Mike Post meat carpenter yeah it's not it has none of those it has a very mournful quite poetic score there are some elements of it that are dated 
Um, the love theme, for example, that is played at the beginning of the pilot and in Married is a lovely melody, but you can argue certainly on the soundtrack it's very much over-egged in its production. I'd love it to is, hear uh... I'd love to hear a version of that that was just the piano do 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 do. It does have that like you see the waves crashing yeah. in the background and two people embracing like in from here to eternity. But the underlying melody is lovely. It's it, it's it is, and you you can't discount the build up to the transformation. Oh yeah, the dun 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 dun. To this day, I am upset when that doesn't play in the whole in the Avengers. I wanted there to be a din, din, din. And then the sting when he hulks out. And the the Aladdin Sane, David Bowie-style piano rampage whenever mm-hmm. the hulks out is embedded in your head. It's it's a fantastic musical score. Uh, the Stop Susan Williams stuff. All of that is really good and well used in the episodes. Well, Harnell was a very accomplished musician um, by the time this series came out. He had worked with um, he had worked with uh, Johnson. That's his name. Yes. Uh, <laughs> before, but you know he was you know he was kind of a pop and jazz guy in the fifties and the sixties, and you know only really got into TV into the seventies. He he. Um, he did an arrangement of Fly Me to the Moon, which was uh, best known, I think, as a um, Frank Sinatra song. Uh, one of my favorite little, <laughs> one of my favorite little um, uh, facts about the late Joe Harnell is that his son is also a musician, but is probably better known as being Wacko Warner on the Animaniacs. All right. Jess Harnell is a very accomplished voice actor and has been since the nineties. Right. That's that's uh, that's Joe Harnell's kid. Brilliant, yeah. And it was it was really fun. It's funny to me for two reasons. One, because I heard in uh, what's his name Rob Paulson, who was the voice of Yakko and also a very accomplished voice actor, has a podcast where he interviews other voice actors. Oh, right. And this is where I found it out that Jess Harnell's dad is Joe Harnell. Never once, when he's like, yeah, my dad did this, my dad did that, never once did he say, and he also did the theme to The Incredible Hulk. Um, Which you'd, you'd think he would mention. In There's a movie called Comic Book the Movie, uh, and it's basically Mark Hamill and all of his voice actor buddies. Guy that did SpongeBob's voice, Jess Harnell, uh, Billy West, uh, who's Fry, and everybody else on Futurama. Mm. Uh it's basically very much a best-in-show type movie, except shot as a mock documentary of this comic book fan who's been hired by the studio who's making a blood-and-guts version of his favorite hero. Uh, and he's going to Comic-Con to try to convince... basically sabotage the production so that it's how he wants it. So it's a comic book fan at Comic-Con. Right. And all throughout it, Harnell's character who's a he's a cameraman who's just been sent by the studio he's not really a bad guy or anything he's just constantly talking i totally love the hulk (laughs) so and he does name check bill bixby at one point right because he talked about that on kevin smith's fat man meets batman podcast and i thought oh i I know nothing about this i must i must find this down it's actually uh to me the better part of it 
is actually they have a a pan they filmed a panel at San Diego that year of all the voice actors, and it was just really interesting to see, you know, I've watched animation for years and to see the people do the voices it's really weird and there's this disconnect but getting back to joe harnell i have a couple of the scores because they've released scores yeah film and he, uh, well, through the, he did notable scores the uh, jack colvin jack mcgee has his own doesn't he da, 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 which is always fun and the hulk out and the fact that going back to the first the evil hulk had a theme mm. Just that they they decided to to give him his own like you know and it's kind of like the opposite of the good Hulk theme in a way, it's like dun dun na very fifties horror film music which is I think why I like it so much. But no, you can't separate the music from this show, uh, from the opening theme which is just a piano. Yeah, where it zooms in on anger. And then pulls mm-hmm. back to danger. Something I had to have pointed out to me. Me too. I never spotted that as a kid. Yeah, when I saw that in the um, when, when when Johnson talked about that in the commentary, it was just like, really? I God, I'm th- it's like when I was watching Superman the movie with my wife, and this was 2001, so I'm 25. So I've been watching the film for 23 years seen it more times than any other movie ever and Lois and Superman go flying and I of course kind of check out of the movie because I think it's the most boring part of the film (laughs) and they do the Peter Pan thing at the end and my wife goes you know she's kind of dressed like Wendy from Peter Pan and I just do that slow turn my head (laughs) look at her I hate you (laughs) (laughs) but um no but it just as indelible as Bill Bixby is and Lou Ferrigno, if you did not have that music, I don't think it would be as memorable as it was. And Harnell would go on to do the score to V is amazing. Yeah. I really like the music from that. And it's really nice, I think, that these scores are coming out for release because, you know, the score from Prometheus is great. The score from Married is great. Yeah. You know? For a while there, all you had was that one soundtrack with basically music from the pilot and the disco version of the theme. Yeah, the disco that was version played of the in, theme. Which I really like. Yeah, it's, it's fine. What you don't hear when you hear it in the episode of Married is that the bass line is the Hulk growling. Right. So when you hear it in your headphones, you hear. Oh, cool! It's actually kind of cute. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, we haven't actually mentioned the end credits theme. The lonely man. The lonely man. My personal favorite version of this is the pilot, where you've got it playing all underneath his speech about Mm -hmm. Elena, and it's on a violin. So if there is anything that sounds more mournful than a violin playing this theme it's really good and then Mm -hmm. over the end credit it plays without any of the background accompaniment yeah it's just the piano and it's very it's a slower tempo Mm. uh than the end credits because they kind of sped it up you know just because the end credits need to be sped up a little bit and there's only so much you want to see of that shot of bill bixby in a coat on a side of a highway (laughs) um but no, I, I agree with you that that one, where, especially where it just it just keeps going and it ends and it ends and then dun dun and nothing. It, and it's, it's not like, it's not got any of the. There's another piano melody underneath the main dun 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 boom 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 
Dun 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 dun, bum 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 bum, and that's not in the pilot one. It's just a dun 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 dun. Dun, yeah, dun, dun, dun. So there's none of the underneath, and it's just even sadder like that. And it does go to the heart of the, the you know, the major theme of, wow, David Banner is screwed. <laughs> so, so a couple years later, this 1982 was the last episode, 1988. Um, I don't know if it was the beginning of 1988 or if it was the end of 1987. I was at my great aunt's house because uh, we were going to take her to dinner for some reason and she had People Magazine and I was just leafing through it because I was bored because it was my great aunt's house and she obviously didn't have any toys to entertain my 12 year old self <laughs> and I open up People Magazine and it has like an announcements page and there's a picture of the Hulk and it says Incredible Hulk Telefilm coming soon now this was a, this was an era of the reunion films yeah because around the same time, you had the return of the $6 million man and the bionic woman. A movie which I saw when I was 12, and because of that, I will always like on some level. Just because I saw it when I was 12, and I still remember that. Um, Sunday Night on NBC became the, the, the home for these, uh, for these things. And sure enough, on what was the date? It was May? May 22. May 22nd, 1988, 12-year-old Michael Bailey was sitting in front of the TV to watch. And now, a world premiere movie spectacular. When David Banner met Maggie Shaw, it was the love they'd both been looking for. But she didn't know his secret. She didn't know that his danger would become her danger. Their life together was threatened. David Banner had been pushed too far. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. He's mean and green, and after six years, the Hulk will face his greatest challenge ever. Because this time, he's fighting for love. Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno are the Incredible Hulk. If the Incredible Hulk returns, next... The only good one of this entire <laughs> series of films. And it's not that good. That's the problem. It's the only one that feels like an episode of the TV series. Yeah, it, yeah it's exactly right. I couldn't agree more. Um, it also is a good example of what you were saying of Bill Bixby kind of standing in the background to let the supporting cast of the, pi the backdoor pilot that they were creating for Thor. Um, you know, just... Uh... Wait... Is this really what Wikipedia is going to describe? It's been two years since his last transformation, and David Banyan has developed a new gamma transponder that he hopes will cure him of his inner monster forever. But when a former student unearths the frozen tomb of an ancient Norse warrior king, the mighty Thor, is unleashed upon 20th century society. Can the Hulk end the rampage of this mead-crazed barbarian? Or will the two raging beasts become allies to save both the transponder and the woman Banner loves? It's the worst synopsis of this film ever. <sighs> you know. You don't like it? I don't like the synopsis. Okay. <laughs> uh, the movie is moderately fun. Charles Napier's in it. Yep. Uh, Jack McGee has a cameo. You just as Cajun as me, man. Yes. <laughs> 
with Tim Thomerson yep. as his brother, apparently. Uh, Colvin has a cameo as Jack McGee, the only time we would see him in the reunion movies, which I mm-hmm. personally think is criminal. Yes. But uh, Eric Kramer just tears up the scenery as Thor. And he's really fun in the role. You're like a rat tail Saxon to me. <laughs> uh, it's hard to, to every time we watch Good Luck Charlie. I was about to say. <laughs> I say to I say to my daughter, "That's Thor. Your mum fancies Thor," and she's like, "Not that Thor." Why not? He's not a bad looking guy. He's an exceptionally um, looking guy. No, I, 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 it was pretty much. The Incredible Hulkization of Thor. Um, you had Donald Blake showing up to track down Bruce Banner, and I kind of liked that. Uh, it's played by an actor named Steve Levitt, who would really not do much else. He was in a romantic comedy called Hunk, right. where he sells his soul um, to the devil to get a hunky body and disappears from the movie for. The re- until the very end, um, it was a, it was a pretty bad film. Uh, Eric Allen Kramer as Thor, I cannot really say too many bad things about because he's just so damn likable. Yeah, I mean, he sh- you see his motivation. They have the whole scene with him going to the bar and getting rip roaring drunk and fighting with people and stuff. And I could honestly see this have gone to a series and at least lasting a season where they go from town to town where. Donald Blake has to act as the Bruce Banner, as the David Banner, and then when crap goes down, Thor shows up. Yeah. And saves the day until season two when they start exploring the Norse side of it, and it gets a more sci-fi edge because they changed producers and uh, decided they want to go in another direction. And it limped into a third season where they went back to the original formula and just really didn't do much. It was canceled midway through. My, I like how I can create an... Into into another <laughs> parallel universe again. <laughs> I just, just kind of, is it unrealistic of anything that I just said? No, it's perfectly plausible. That's what's amazing about it. <laughs> um, I, I think what was kind of fun about this is that they did try to make it like an episode. You know, it did what a reunion film should do. Brought back all of the cast members. They got to do what they wanted to do. They just decided to saddle it with this backdoor pilot, which they would continue in Trial of the Incredible Hulk. Which I don't care for because the Hulk's just not in it enough. No, and and Banner's not Hulk in it enough, out. and it, there's discontinuity between Banner and the Hulk. For some reason, Bixby's wearing a full beard in this one. Yeah, that the Hulk and doesn't have. Not. And it's like uh, the Hulk would have looked really cool with a full beard. What's going on? I don't know why Bixby had it. It's it's really it's hard to like this movie. Because it's Mainly so be- dull. It's it, yeah, it's pretty dull. I mean, I don't mind Daredevil in it. I, I think that they they did a decent job of setting up Matt Murdock, uh, the Karen Page character, who's not really Karen Page, um, was played by an actress named Nancy Everhard. Oh yeah, uh, cute, cute girl. Um, she would go on to not only be in the Punisher film. Uh, with Dolph uh, uh, co-starring with uh, what's his name Louis Gossett Jr. to play the uh, the person hunting down uh, Dolph Lundgren's Punisher character she was also in an episode of Lois and Clark 
uh, in the first season with longer hair, and uh, I like her quite a bit for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why. I like seeing her in everything that uh, that I've seen her in. But as a Daredevil pilot, it really doesn't do much for me. As a Hulk movie, it definitely doesn't do anything for me. No, it's uh, it's the, notable only for having Stan in it. Yeah, the, the 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 dream sequence is pretty much the best part of the movie. Yeah, and it's that's what they used to trail it. And I think okay, I also kind of liked the dynamic between David and Matt Murdock about halfway through the movie, where they're where he's telling him his origin, and David goes over and looks at his eyes. And he's just like, you know, most doctors don't know much about radiation. I know a lot about it. Mm. Um, I just think, you know, okay, so he transformed in the subway, and he's caught, he's in jail, there's this Daredevil guy, end of story. And Daredevil has a blindfold on for absolutely no reason. Absolutely no reason. <laughs> there was no reason. But, again, I could have seen this going to a, a, a series, but only lasting, like, one season. Because it wasn't very good. I don't think Rex Smith could have carried it. And then, finally... And this is, like, the most depressing end to anything ever. I mean, you know, Bionic Ever After at least had a happy ending. Yeah, and at least gave you what you wanted, that the two of yeah. them finally got married. This has no closure, despite its title, despite the end scene. It, it's just appallingly bad on every conceivable level. It fails as a finale to the show. It fails as a decent movie in its own right. It's just a, a colossal failure. It doesn't even feel like it belongs with the rest of the series. No. Because, granted, at the beginning, it's kind of interesting to see David Banner playing a simple-minded person and talking to Lou Ferrigno's wife at the bank. Right. Mo movies with popcorn. Um... And it, I, I will say that the relationship between him and the older Doctor was at least somewhat emotionally satisfying, because at last he has somebody who's going to help him. The whole subplot with the Russians and the secret agent, the girl from Elizabeth Grayson, who would go on to annoy the hell out of me on the Highlander series. <laughs> and Andreas Katsoulis. Who would go on to be in uh, Babylon 5. Um... It just didn't feel like any of this fit together. <laughs> it was a mishmash of plots, and the death... Okay, I'll admit, when I was 14, I shed a tear. See, I'll, I, I'll I just that. thought it was dopey, but I was four years older than you when I first saw this. <laughs> it's true, but... And they were released so, on DVD over here. Sorry, VHS, we didn't have DVD then, did we? So I'd paid to watch this. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh at that. No, it's fair enough. I would mock me mercilessly as well. But it's just, for me, him dying because he fell out of an exploding plane was kind of stupid. It was very uh, stupid. And it's just, just so badly executed. When he's falling and he's going, oh, if I flap my arms, can I fly? It's, oh, God, it's awful. Why did Johnson not come back for these? Um, I have no idea. Maybe he was working on Alien. I know he's doing Alien Nation yeah. for, you know, around this time. So that might have been it. I, I, maybe he just didn't want anything to do with it. 
<laughs> he didn't have anything to do with uh, any of the bionic reunions, so... And he pretty much, you know, created the bionic woman, even though... Well, they, they probably didn't come back for that because of the contentious relationship between him and Lindsay Wagner. Mm. But um, it's just a really... It's not even an interesting action movie. No, but, it's tedious. The uh, whole are perfunctory. You've got that ridiculous scene where Banner falls for um, Elizabeth Grayson's character simply because that's the plot. There's yeah, no they, they have sex them. for absolutely no reason. Yeah, there's no chemistry between them. Based on everything we've seen of Banner in the series, he doesn't just throw himself at anyone who wants him. Otherwise, he'd be more popular than Don Johnson in Miami Vice. He, there has to be something between them. It's just awful. It's badly written. It's poorly directed. Sorry, Bill, but it is. It's performance-wise, it's redundant. It's just not very good at all. And I don't really care for Elizabeth Grayson. No, me neither. Despite the, despite the fact that apparently she slept with Bill Clinton as being her... Did everybody? Of fame. Yeah, well, that's true. She was <laughs> like a Miss America or in one of those beauty pageants. Um, and again, I would go on to hate her on Highlander uh, simply because every time she showed up, I thought... You're... Sh- <laughs> Nothing angered me more than when the rumors came out at the during the final season of Highlander that there was going to be another Highlander series with a female immortal. Yeah, and I'm no, like, no. God, I hope it's not her. And then the the final season had like five episodes in the row with these great female immortal characters. Yeah, Cla- any one of which could have carried us. With a what? Claudia Christensen was one, wasn't she? I think she was. Uh, that might have been earlier, but there was like this one that was like, I was like, wow, I'd like to see more of her in every sense of that term. <laughs> um, and then it's just like, no, it, it's going to be her. And I'm like, really? <laughs> well, I'm not watching it, which I never have and I never will. And, and it lasted a season. Uh, and, and it lasted a season in syndication, which means it was really bad. <laughs> because Nightman lasted for two. <laughs> Let's put this into context. Um, but it's just it's just kind of a sad end to the series and you can and of course they could never really resolve it which they had wanted to uh, because Bill Bixby uh, the prostate cancer spread and metastasized and he died in um, November of 93 the only reason I remember that so well is he actually passed away a couple weeks before my mother did so it was a really it was a sad time for me <laughs> I mean, obviously more for the mother thing, but you know, well, Bill Bixby yeah. being such a being such a big part of my life, he's one of the I don't really usually get upset when celebrities die. No, I'm the same. I have to have a really personal connection to something they did for me to kind of get upset. It was the same when John Denver died, I got upset because it was my mother's favorite singer. Right. Uh when when Bill Bixby died, it was it was kind of a hit because one, you know, the Hulk was such a part of my life, but too, but he was a tremendous actor and director. Uh, he spent the last part of his life working on Blossom. Yeah. Um, and I remember watching, um, entertainment tonight would occasionally have like reports on him. And I remember, uh, when he passed away, they would show him backstage with the people from Blossom. And he was obviously in his element and he was having a good time because his acting career really never went too far after the Hulk was over. Uh, you had Goodnight Beantown, and I think that's the last series he did. Yeah, he just kind of did cameos and uh, did directing after that, didn't he? He directed a lot of Sledgehammer. Beautiful show. Uh, I love that show. Particularly memorable, there was a shot, a 
of an episode he directed where it just pans down past a bunch of criminals in a cell and Bixbit is one of the criminals lying on a, a prison cell bed reading an issue of The Incredible Hulk. <laughs> I've never seen that and I really want to now. He's, I don't know which episode it is because I don't, I've known Sledgehammer's never been repeated over here and isn't that on DVD, but uh, I, I got a real kick out of that because he's not credited has been in it he's just credited as director and it is just one of those moments he's lying on the cell he loads the comic and just looks around at something and lifts it back up and carries on doing what he's doing <laughs> that's beautiful that makes me smile in a way that, see that would have been a better way to end the, the yep. death of the Incredible Hulk yep. so. but they wanted to do the revenge of the Incredible Hulk I think they called it there was also discussion of a She-Hulk film, a TV series with Brigitte Nielsen mm-hmm. Rumors of a She-Hulk uh, series have once again surfaced with uh, Angie Harmon. Yeah, the girl from, from Rizzoli and Isles. Awesome. I prefer to think of her as a girl from Law and Order because Rizzoli and Isles is kind of crap. I've never, but, uh, never watched it. Uh, there's a picture of her like punching the pavement and somebody doctored it up with because she wants to do it. That's the funny thing. The only thing that gave me pause is uh, she was talking about because apparently she read like the Dan Slott comics. Mm and thought this was a great take and she's like yeah and she could be in bed with a guy and then rip him in half afterwards i'm like i'm never did, did you read the same you comics i did <laughs> but just more to the fact of is, is that really really you just want to kill the guy after you have sex with him i mean that well you're gonna go through a lot of partners and after a while it's gonna you're gonna get a reputation so good luck with that <laughs> um but it was never to be and lou ferrigno did reprise his role as the hulk on the fall guy yep in a very memorable scene, which would never have happened in the series because the Hulk is punching people. Yeah. Showing that they weren't paying attention. But it was neat to see the Hulk. And unfortunately, the only YouTube video of that that I've ever been able to find is in German. So, uh... Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure I found a British one. An English one, an English speaker. You know what I mean. <laughs> we're, we're all, like, like, how does the growl sound with a British accent? <laughs> and now we want some tea. <laughs> Don't make me yes. angry, Mr. McGee. You would not like me when I'm angry. Because <laughs> that's what... <laughs> you... <laughs> Sorry, I just... <laughs> We're going to have some tea. <laughs> oh, sitting there with a proper cup in his hands, some scones <laughs> laid out. Because it's four o'clock, right? we got to stop everything and drink tea. Yes, because um, I did that. That's when your, your internet went down. That's what I was doing. <laughs> We had to have tea. Yeah, we had so to stop. Tea. I had to stop the show because <laughs> that's all British people do. Yeah, that's all we do. Um, one of the other, the last things I want to touch on is uh, the series has had a pretty successful run in the home video market. Uh, the pilot was released very early on as a VHS tape. Uh, well, it was released theatrically, wasn't it? Um, I believe it was. Different things about this in the Tomorrow's boot that I've got here. There is a poster, a gorgeous movie poster, of the Incredible Hulk, the movie, um, of Banner hulking out. That apparently this was a theatrical print somewhere. I don't know where. It can't have been over here because we got the pilot not soon, not long after you guys got it. Whereas traditionally, if the pilot was released theatrically over here, as with Spider-Man, the series was somehow delayed. Battlestar Galactica being another, the pilot aired in the cinema. So we only got the series in like 79 or 80. There was kind of an embargo on it. So I don't know where this was, but I've read somewhere that the pilot that was released theatrically also had 747 tacked on at the end. 
That makes sense. Now, I, I don't know if it was released theatrically in the United States. I know other pilots were. Buck Rogers and Battlestar Galactica both showed it like... Um, um, were shown at, in like drive-ins and stuff, mm. too. Uh, so it's not impossible. But at the same time... I, I, I just don't know for sure. I know it was released theatrically in other countries, though. Yeah. So that, that might be where that's from. So, but I, I, I gotta get that book. Um. Yeah, it's a brilliant poster. Um, you've seen it on TV, now seen for the first time on the big cinema screen, The Incredible Hulk, the movie. So the TV series must have been out when that poster was produced. But it doesn't give you any indication as to a running time or anything. And I'm sure I've read somewhere the, the tacked and edited version of 747 on the end of it to make it more a theatrical-length film. But they did the same with Galactica. Mm-hmm. The second Battlestar Galactica movie released, released theatrically, Mission Galactica. The Cylon attack was three episodes of Galactica stitched together to make a two-hour movie. But we, we had the VHS release of the pilot... Uh, I know at least The Incredible Hulk Returns was released on video because I had it on VHS. Uh, the pilot was probably also released on beta. I'm just assuming. Um, Time Life Video, I believe. One of those video houses that like releases like select episodes of series released a bunch of the Hulk, including the first, which I bought off of eBay because I really, really wanted to see the full version of it. And then, this is what pisses me off. I mean, this is what really pisses me off. The reunion films were all released eventually through Anchor Bay on DVD. Uh, they did the, the Incredible Hulk Returns and Trial of the Incredible Hulk as a two-disc set, basically, where they also had a documentary with Lou Ferrigno showing him going back into competitive bodybuilding and eventually losing. Um, Really interesting little movie, actually. So you had all that, which was a nice little set, and I was willing to pay money for that. And then they released Death of the Incredible Hulk as a single disc, uh, just as kind of an afterthought. And this was all in, like, 2003 when the Ang Lee film was going to hit. Mm. They released a... DVD that was a dual DVD. On one side was the pilot, on the other side was married. They had commentary with it. And then they released the ultimate Incredible Hulk box set, which was like eight discs or so with like 18 select 18 episodes of the series. I have both of those, that pilot and that DVD set. And I bought both of those specifically because I I thought, okay, the movie's coming out. They're never putting these out on DVD. Mm. And then they started putting them out on DVD. Yeah. Damn them. Which I bought. Ugh, God, I'm such a sucker for these things. <laughs> I don't have season five yet. Uh, I paid full price for seasons one and two. I paid $10 for season three. And I won season four at Dragon Con. There's a website out there called needcoffee.com. They have a huge presence at Dragon Con. And they had a a panel on Monday morning. So it's like 10 o'clock Monday morning of Dragon Con, which is like waking up from a three-day bender and then having to go and do something. And they were giving out prizes because they get stuff from studios and stuff. And uh, they were talking about Brian Blessed because they love Brian Blessed. Everybody loves Brian Blessed. 
and they're like, yeah, he's he, you know, he could be in a movie about, uh, you know, like, you know, the story of Jesus. And I said very loud, Jesus is alive, alive, alive. And apparently this made them laugh enough because I made a Flash Gordon reference with Brian Blessed that they gave me a DVD box set. Cool. But I saw that one of the other box sets was season four of The Incredible Hulk, so I traded in. Fair enough. So I actually got that one for free. <laughs> so it all evens so Brian, out. So Brian Blessed got me season four of The Incredible Hulk. Yeah, it's because Brian Blessed rocks. He does. But uh, do you have any of the other DVDs? Nope. That makes me sad. <laughs> I have I have all the series. I don't have any of the DVDs. Oh, okay. <laughs> did your buddy Tor come by? Yes, he did. <laughs> but he came via news groups. Did they get released? Um... Yeah, yeah. The, the Hulk has all been released over here. I don't think it's got any of the special features that yours has, but that's part of the course over here with Universal. Where at oh. least all five seasons got released, unlike the $6 million man and the Bionic Woman. The... Um... The first disc had like an interview with Kenneth Johnson and the commentary and a bonus episode of Stop the Presses. The second season had a bonus episode of Homecoming, and that was pretty much it. Uh, the f- fourth season has a commentary for Prometheus, which is rather good, and another interview that actually features uh, Karen Harris and Jill Sherman as well. Yeah, there's a behind-the-scenes story, which is interviews with Ken Johnson and Karen Harris and Jill Sherman and a gag reel I don't know where they came uh, from but. I'm wondering if the gag reel there was a, they did a gag reel every year right. and they showed it at like the rap party uh, because Kenneth Johnson thought it would be the, that it would be something that everyone could laugh at at the end of the season so uh, that, that was kind of his and, and everything I've read about Kenneth Johnson is that you know the way he at least the way he says it is that he really tried to take care of his people uh, even when he was arguing with Bill Bixby over whether or not whether or not David Banner would say something. Mm. <laughs> Apparently it'd be like, David Banner wouldn't say that, uh, but he's got to say it. But David Banner wouldn't say it. Well, you, you kind of got to say it. Okay, I'll say it, but David Banner wouldn't say that. <laughs> Which I can honestly see. So, final thoughts on The Incredible Hulk. Uh, I think it's, for the most part, I think it stands up credit incredibly well. There are better episodes and there are bad episodes, as there is with all shows. It's a lot better than we could have hoped it would be when it was first announced. And a fact that it is still crazy influential. You only have to look at the 2008 Edward Norton movie to see that that film is still in some way influential on how the Hulk is perceived. And I think largely because of that show, the Hulk is one of Marvel's most recognizable properties. I'll agree with that. I think the the Edward Norton film was probably about the best blending of the comic book Hulk and the television Hulk that you're ever going to get mm. uh, until they do a film with Mark Ruffalo, which I think is going to do an even better job, um, just because I loved him so much in that movie. Um what I think Norton did, and again, I you know I kind of alluded this to this before, but the scene where he's working in the bottling plant and the two or three tough guys are hassling that woman, and he walks by and she looks at him and gives that help me look, and he keeps walking, and then he comes back, knowing this could go badly for everybody in the room right now, but he goes back to help her. Yeah, and I and I think that really captures who David Banner is. Uh, I was really disappointed that they didn't do white eyes. Yeah, so was I. 
because everyone thinks it's green eyes for some reason, except you, me, and like three other people. <laughs> um, but uh, I, you know, for me, the the legacy of this show is that it forever cemented me as a Hulk fan. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've gone on to read the comics, and I like them. I like them a lot. Uh, uh, the Peter David run is brilliant. The Bill Mantlo run is amazing. The Roger Stern run, what I've read of it, is just is, is fantastic. Uh, I liked Planet Hulk, even though it ran on too long. Uh, I even like what Jeff Loeb did with Red Hulk. Yes, I thought that was kind so of did that, I. that was a lot better than I thought it was going to be. But for me, when I close my eyes and I think of the Hulk, it's always going to be Bill Bixby. Yeah. And to this day, if I'm out walking with a bag, I will hum that theme tune. <laughs> I did it yesterday. You be good to yourself, my friend. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.libsyn.com and is a registered trademark of Demonzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.